Welcome, and thank you for joining us today on the Heroes and Icons podcast. I'm your host, Greg Randolph. Please find me on my new website, heroesandiconspodcast.com, and on Twitter at Heroes Icons Pod to get updates for great shows like this and others. If you're enjoying the show, please share it with a friend or two, and I thank you very much in advance for doing so. We have a very special guest today. If you're a football fan, especially of the NFL and the Miami Dolphins, this gentleman needs no introduction. He was drafted in the sixth round of the 1973 NFL draft by Miami as an offensive lineman out of Duke, where in addition to being a football All-American in 1971, he was also an ACC heavyweight wrestling champion in 1970 and 1971. He played in the last three Super Bowls that the Dolphins have appeared in, the last of which was 1985. He played 13 NFL seasons with the Miami Dolphins from 1973 to 1985 and was named to four consecutive Pro Bowls from 1981 to 1984. He was also named to the All-Pro second team for the 1981 to 1983 seasons and was first-team All-Pro in 1984 when he enjoyed his greatest season as a professional. He has been inducted into the Duke Athletic Hall of Fame, the National Jewish Sports Hall of Fame, and the International Jewish Sports Hall of Fame in Israel. He was also inducted into the Miami Dolphins Walk of Honor in 2014 and the St. Thomas University of Florida Sports Hall of Fame in 2015. He was listed as one of the top 50 players in the first 50 years of the franchise by the Miami Dolphins. After his football playing days were done, he enjoyed a very successful legal career in Miami as both an attorney and then as a county judge from 1994 to 2022. He is the author of the forthcoming book, Warrior Judge, one Man's Journey from Gridiron to Gavel, a memoir that will be released in early 2024. My guest today is the now-retired Honorable Ed Newman. It is a tremendous honor to have you on the show with me today, sir. How are you doing, Ed? And aside from writing books and playing golf, I understand that five grandkids keep you pretty busy. I'm going up next week. I'm doing pretty well. I'm, I'm very happy in retirement. Health is... We've had a couple of wounds over the years from the NFL. I'm, I'm trying to keep my weight and uh, keep in good physical condition as best as I can. And um, life is good. I'm a very happy man. Good. It's great to have you on the show with me today. And thank you so much for your time. Um, so according to your daughter, uh, Holly Greenberg, who is, who's authored the new book with you. and She's, uh, she's a co-author. You know. Yes, sir. And she's just been phenomenal in this whole process. Your new book, The Warrior Judge, as we mentioned, she mentioned that it was a five-year journey from start to finish. What all do you cover in the book, and how arduous has that book writing process been? By way of some analysis, about five years ago, my father passed away, and I, I gave a eulogy. And my daughter, Holly, picked up on it. She had, this is a very important, my story, Ed Newman's story is a very important story, and I don't want there to be any regrets. Uh, things weren't uh, talked about. We started, I was in, on the, I was in the court, and uh, there were break periods. Every lunch twice a week, approximately, she'd put a recorder and she'd say, let's go to here and tell me some interesting stories. And she made a compendium of, of stories. She recorded it and then she transcribed them. After doing this for almost eight or nine, 10 months, we, we saw that th this had the architecture, the framework for a story could almost read like a novel. We had to manipulate some of the, the themes and focus on and put them into chapters, although the same themes apply for every year in the NFL. It goes back from the time I'm born, and it, it brings up the highly motivating events in my life that helped me. So it's an adventure of 
adversity and goals and desires and terrific determination. And there's a tremendous balance between uh, academics and, and football. Uh, my parents were insisting that I maintain my grades. I'm glad that they did. And that was all good. And, and then Holly herself, uh, she's a terrific writer in her own regard, but, but she, she really wasn't uh, um, speaking in my voice. She was speaking in a highly romantic voice, like a daughter would for a father. Sure. I said, well, no, you, you need to tell this story from, from my perspective. So we, 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 we had a give and take uh, a process. After some time, um, we were able to put together all of these stories in, into um, an odyssey. Uh, 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 it was 32 chapters. And from there, difficulties began on editing and style. And we worked very hard and we were able to manage and pull through and put together. But I think is it's, it's such an outrageous story that it reads like a novel. Uh, and it has these things that I talked about. It's very enjoyable. My original approach was to tell the tale to my grandchildren. Right. All right. Now, when it got into publication, there, there was some need to change the audience a little bit. So there were some adjustments in combing through. The last phase, which was somewhat troubling, is with this COVID and all of the computers that, that the word processes people have, it was difficulty finding publishers and agents. And there was some time on that. This book was substantially completed more than a year ago. And we've been moving to get it towards publication. And I think we're pretty close. Um, we have papers signed and ready to go. And it was a terrific opportunity for me to show love to my teammates and my you know, serious people in my life. It, it talks about plan B, how um, I had to get to night school law, for my law degree while I was playing Super Bowls. So that's a right. um, very interesting conflict to have and having to put off final exams because I had a Super Bowl in, in 1984. <laughs> right. and, was, and the dean was understanding. I was happy about that. In the, they have this blue book that, that they give you. You write these, these essays. Okay. In it, it's a blind testing. The dean says, you can't tell the, your professor that you're the one. So I get a note in the blue book. It says, this is a professor. I'll leave his name out to protect the innocent. Mm -hmm. And there's only one person that's missing, and I know who it is, Ed. <laughs> you know, you'll do fine. Don't worry. And then good luck in the Super Bowl. I wish I saved that note. That would be a collectible. Holly and I, to answer the question even more precisely, it's a very interesting thing for a daughter to honor his husband, a father like Holly did. And in the odyssey of making this book over three and a half years or so, there was a lot of psychology going on. Holly was like, a, I was confessing to her. And let me say this. There are I'm 72 years old now, but when I was 25, I was a little less mature, and, and I thought about things differently at that time. For instance, competitors, uh, as an example. We incorporate a feeling of what it's like, what's the perspective, what's the roadmap for a, a, a high school, college, and, and a pro football player going through the various echelons and, uh, and succeeding. I had um, cancers and broken knees and... Of course, all the all-pro adversaries uh, that uh, Bob Kuchenberg, an immortal, great NFL player, Miami Dolphin, Larry Little. These are the guys that I were trying to break into. Uh, I have tremendous frustration. Usually you don't see athletes, but the book touches on it a little bit. I'm wondering, what am I doing wrong? I 
couldn't conceive of putting in more effort and it was just perseverance and I got through. But the team rivalries, um, that's an important um, part of an NFL career, but you don't usually read about that. And it's difficult because you have teammates and you love them. There's also a love fest, for instance, Larry Zonka or Larry Little or, or mm-hmm. uh, half a dozen other players, close people in, in my lives. All that was just tremendous. The best thing was bonding with my Holly. I had, I think that was a once in a lifetime experience. I have another daughter. She's wonderful. Stephanie, I love you. But this was very special with me and Holly. Yes, I understand. Your, your story is so terrific. And, <clears throat> and you fought through so much and you persevered. We'll talk about a, a, a few different things here that you just mentioned. Let me go back all the way to the very beginning, if I can. What was your first introduction to football and who were some players or teams that you followed growing up? I, you know, I might surprise you here. I really was the geeky kid growing up. I, I happened to have a very great talent. I was strong and fast and quick, and I, I could deal with pain, and I was very coachable. I was intelligent. Uh, Were there some players or teams that you followed? No. no. I, I wasn't that interested. I didn't even know what a Miami Dolphin was when I was drafted. Sure. I knew Joe Namath, the, the Jets, New York and the area, Super Bowl three. It was local. I knew Coach Shula and his frustration in Baltimore from the Jet game. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. And then I had no concept of what it was to be uh, a, a pro football player as a college ball player. I, I right. was imagining that I could play pro football. I was way stronger than all the other ball players because of the, the heavyweight wrestling experience. Right which went so closely, it melded so closely with, with, with the football. In fact, when I got to Miami, an uh, underdeveloped weight program at, at, at the Dolphins, so I went to local university, FIU, Florida International University, mm-hmm. and said, can I be an assistant coach for you? I'll be free. I'll right. give you, I'll volunteer my, my services. I laid out my credentials, a two-time ACC champion. So I did, and uh, I went through about half of their season, and their heavyweight quit. Says, You're too hard. You're working me too hard. I was giving an opportunity of a lifetime, but he wasn't interested. And in, he was just trying to stay in shape. He wasn't interested in real competition. No, so my whole career, a little unusual in the NFL and wrestling and all sports, I pretty much compartmentalize about what's happening today or this week or maybe a short-term horizon. I get prepared long-term off-season weight training and or wrestling or, or other sports. There were some that I really admired. I admired Joe Namath. I admired some of them, their tight end. And I certainly was a big fan of football, but as a player. Understood. Understood. Okay. I wasn't much of a fan. I would never think about coming up to somebody and say, can I have your autograph? It's just an unusual person. Okay. There, there's more than one, then there's more than one way to take a path and make a great story and a great life. Yeah. You've, you've certainly done that. Yes. Well, thank you. Yes, sir. So it's been well documented that in those early days, Miami Dolphins head coach Don Shula was seemingly possessed to win Super Bowls. And they had been there the previous two seasons, it's two seasons in 71, 72. How excited were you to to play for a winning team? And how were you notified by the Dolphins that they had drafted you? 
I was uh, super excited. I liked the idea that it was a, a, a world championship team. I had same anxieties. Uh, um, I was at Duke University and, and uh, people in my building, fraternity brothers, were saying, they got Bob Kucherberg and Larry Little. It's highly unlikely for you to start if you even make the team. This is an extremely competitive business that, that you're getting into. I get there and my eyes are open like saucers and everybody's bigger than life. And these guys are the 17-year-old perfect season. They still have the gloss going on. They're walking on air. You right. can see that they're, they're, they don't, they're not normal people. You just try not to make mistakes and just try to show the coach. So you, you come into preseason and the veterans are veteran players are take it easy. We're just trying to get our timing down a little bit. So I need the coach. To, I need to catch his attention. Mm-hmm. So I became a little bit of a problem for the veterans. And they used to pick <laughs> on me quite a bit. I remember that's actually talked about in the book a little bit. Manny Fernandez, he would torture me. He was trying to draw me off sides all the time by spitting on my hand. <laughs> I'd be across the line, he'd be spitting. What are you going to do about it, rookie? He's one of my best friends. So we, we got into a, a wrestling match right over there. But the coach sees that and he said, okay, because what are they thinking? They probably think Duke, Ed Newman, this is a geek. This is a flash in the pan. And you know, he's a fighter. That's also came out. And I just kept on persevering and just being as dedicated as I kept, as I could be. It was it was really wonderful. A part of this, I remember the same kind of patterns. These things are like cycles. Sure. Go through high school. It was high school football and wrestling. I finished the high school football, and the wrestling coach says, "Now that you're going to play college ball, you'll probably give up me on the wrestling program." I said, "No, I'm here to go undefeated." All right. Then he gave me the challenges. So I built upon what I had from that football season through the wrestling season. And it paid off when you go to when you go to Duke University. The the coach there, his name is Jacques Hedrick. And he says, we'd like you to come to Duke. He's recruiting. We'd like you to come to Duke. And I said, I only have one condition. What's that? He says, I'll be on a football scholarship, but I would like your guarantee that you won't interfere with me if I go out for wrestling. I knew what my secret sauce was. And he said, I've never heard anybody say they wanted to do more for the school, for their scholarship. He said, well, you got somebody special. And that's what happened. I did have a rub with Coach Mike McGee, was the second coach while at Duke. He wanted to ship me over to middle linebacker. And I was, in, I was getting ready to go to the Nationals as a junior. He, he didn't request it. He said, you're on a football scholarship. I'm the coach. You're not going to the Nationals. Uh, there was a little bit of a resentment and problem uh, from that, but you know the, the lesson was still there. I was in great shape. I I I, I got drafted, and I I, I was still wrestling at, at Duke University. And I was wrestling at FIU the next year. Right. The what happens is the, the FIU kid quit, and I had to educate myself on how to lift weights. That that really, few, su- that really surprises me because I saw that in some of my research that you were one of the first Dolphins players to to lift weights. But I was very surprised by that because it almost seems like somebody like, like a Bob Kuchenberg or a Manny Fernandez or a Zonka. Those guys almost most assuredly had to have lifted weights at, at some point. Maybe there wasn't a program there. And I just didn't understand the the, the comment. And they lifted on. There were baseball uh, players who said, don't lift weights. It'll 
you'll ruin your flexibility. You'll be injury prone. And you heard those kind of things from football players. Uh, that's nonsense. These are I mean, the muscles are the tools of the trade, especially for inside linemen, offensive defensive linemen. We had a, a rental facility. The Dolphins rented at, at Biscayne College, mm-hmm. uh, now known as St. Thomas University. And they had a football field. They had locker room area and the weight facilities. The weight facility was, I, I'm not lying to you, it was a totally rusted, rotted out universal machine wow. in an unconditioned, windowless pool. Like you'd see like a very small building. And they put it in there. And that's where I went. Now, there were only a few of us that left it. Manny Fernandez, Mercury Morris, mm-hmm. Jim Kick, Jim Langer, and Bob Kuchenberg. Malty Moore was a weightlifter. Not many more. When I asked him about that, I came into the facility. I went to the trainer. There's the strength coach. The strength coach is the trainer. Said, what do you do? So most people just go to the pillbox, go find out from Kuchenberg, who was out there. So I got a relationship with Kuchenberg and Langer, and we started our lifting routines. It was terrible. My rookie year, we had a second-round draft pick named Chuck Bradley, and physically a very large man. We had a, a, a great potential to pack some... He could have put 30, 40 pounds of, uh, of pure muscle on his body. Shula complained to him after two years he wasn't producing, said, you got to get stronger. He said, how can you get stronger here? You don't have anything. You don't have any facilities. The Dolphins were an embarrassment as far as a weight facility back in 1973. Wow. Don Shula listened to Chuck, this guy Chuck, and said, okay, we'll get a facility. And they put one in as a result of that. That didn't happen until 75. 1975. Let me keep you a, a, another thing. Mm-hmm. We had a Super Bowl in 82 against the Redskins, and they were the Hogs. Right. Remember? Oh, they were sure. big, heavy offensive linemen. Mm-hmm. Shula um, was so pleased with himself for having speed and quickness. He, he, he had us all strictly under weight limits. You couldn't gain too much weight. So, well, the, the, these were some of the things that were going on. Interesting. So, so let me let me go back to your to your rookie season a bit. Um, in another interview, it was it was Manny Fernandez, and he was on a a show uh, over there in Miami. It's called uh, Inside the Fish Tank with um, OJ McDuffie and Seth uh, Levitt, I think is his name. Cool. Fernandez mentioned you by name that you were one of the guys that really disliked the twelve minute run. Oh yeah, of, of Shula's that you didn't really care for that or. Or, no, it wasn't a, a, a thing of, of caring. Is sure. football players can be quite emotional. All right. Yes. So I, I'm emotional, and I, all I want to do is win. All I want to do is be the best. All right. So I'll tell you a little anecdote, and, and I'll, it'll cement it in. I lived in a town in Long Island called North Belmore. It's on the South Shore. My brother came along and we needed a bigger house. We went to Syosset. So when we made the transfer to North Belmore to Syosset, Mm -hmm. I'm in class in in the fall and they're practicing on the field. I said, what happened? I just was a kid that that was transferred. And I went and we, we talked to the athletic director and they said, you didn't register. You had to register beforehand. So I said, I haven't registered. And you transferred. So they thought that this was football player rating. They moved me from North Belmore. They wouldn't let me play. 
So I had no football as a, I think that was as a, as an eighth grader, maybe a seventh grader. Okay. Uh, I went out for the cross country team. Track and field, cross country. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that sounds like a good thing. So they, the, the guy says, go, and I'm, I'm, in, I'm in a sprint. And after a quarter of a mile, I'm in last place. All right? <laughs> Coach says, you can't sprint like that. You can't be the first. You have to pace yourself. This goes on, and uh, I'm trying after three or four weeks. And I'm in last place. I'm 15 minutes behind everybody else. And I'm just I'm deciding I hate running. I hate running. I hate it. I hate it. I'm not going to do it. And that, it scarred me for the rest of my life. I had to really try to overcome that. And I did get the other 12-minute run in Shula's infamous 12-minute run, but just barely, just 15 or 20 yards every year. And I, I tried my darndest. Now, you also keep in mind now, you're looking at me right now, I weigh 215 pounds. Okay. So this is a 215-pound frame. I had 3% body weight, and I was 275 Wow! in the time that you're talking about. So it was just too much of a strain. I had a type of a heart which was small, extremely strong, not a high um, stroke volume. I remember talking to, we had a, a, a team doctor, and he said, that's the problem. You, your heart is extremely powerful. You're a great sprinter, power lifter, mm-hmm. but you're not going to be a, a, a marathon runner ever. Did you see the point where did you, I don't want to say you had to to do those to, to humor Coach Shula, but... But at the same time, it was there any justification for it? It's like I'm an offensive lineman. I'm working in short, intermediate burst here, spurts down, in, I don't know, 20, 30, 40 yards at the most. But yeah. w- w- why do I have to do this marathon type of run? John Sandusky and I said, why do I have to do that? And he, and he said, do you think John Hanna, Hall of Famer, do you think he's doing that? Do you think he could possibly complete that? And he said, no, I don't think so. Why did Shula do this? It's a, It's 102 degrees outside. Right. People are going to die. So yes. Shula keeps this 12-minute thing in front of you uh, on the off-season, and you better be ready. You have to be in condition to do that. Right. So he doesn't have many people that are not in condition. That is a, a big plus for why there's their 12-minute run. I, I don't think it's that good, actually. That's Coach Shula. And he, you couldn't talk to him. You could, but it was difficult. He, he wouldn't come off of that. I'll tell you, some players would, like, maybe you've heard uh, stories about Larry Little. Yes. Yeah. Larry Little used to stop. <laughs> and they'd say, oh, you have to do this tomorrow. So the coach and all the players would, would go to sleep, and everybody would have their things to do. And Shula said to the trainer, I want you to take him out and have him do the 12-minute run again tomorrow morning. So he did. He would go out and run the 12-minute again. No one knows what happened at that <laughs> at that 12 minute run i think the story that i heard little tell was that he asked the trainer to find something wrong with him to excuse him from the run he had a, some type of nasal issue or allergies or something uh, the story i remember is mm-hmm. she also had a tough thing called gasters a lot of teams have that sprints mm-hmm. it's wind sprints it was one of those 100 degree days and he fell out he he fainted so he just didn't want to run. <laughs> he just he was at the end of his rope. This sure. is what was going on. And but, but they they find a reason for him to you know, <laughs> fall out like that. That's what was going on. But, but, that um, was, but that was the great thing about Shula was that, you know, as I understand it, I, he, I think he told you guys 
we can use this as an excuse and just and do what the other team does, or we can take this and then use it to our advantage. And we can really have an advantage on the other team that way. If we take advantage of this heat and endure it and learn how to deal with it and everything else, that can be a huge advantage for us and help us win. It would be rare when we have a dark green jersey or a light, a white jersey, it reflected the sunlight and kept the heat down a little bit. It was a big advantage in a home field advantage in Miami in September. We had the fans and the ice and the, the conditioning. We knew how to hydrate. A lot of good things gave us advantage, and we used them. I don't think we, we wore green ever at home, maybe once or twice in my whole career. Or I had 167 did. games. Or if you did, maybe it was for a night game, something like that, or later in the season. When we were home, we wore white almost every time. Uh, and it was about the heat. And we like we had that game against San Diego, the uh, hook and ladder game. It was um, uh, very hot. Uh, um, they came to Miami. All of our guys went home that night. About I heard about eight or nine of their people stayed over for IV fluids. Mm-hmm. It was harder on on, 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 a, on a lot of visiting teams coming to Miami. Big advantage for the, for, for the Dolphins. Well, being from New York, you knew how cold it could get playing football, but did you have any idea how hot it could get down there in Miami? No, I didn't. <laughs> and Shula was crazy with, you know, with the, uh, no water on the field. Uh, yep. Players used to go over somebody get a bump bump on their hand and they're putting ice on it. So they have a plastic bag of ice. So they're breaking holes on the plastic bag, <laughs> sucking out the, the water from that. It was just uh, ridiculously hot uh, and humid. And you could just feel the, the wall of heat coming right off the ground. August 21st, I remember, was the combination of humidity and heat. It reached its greatest intensity. And um, you, you were still playing on the polyturf. At that time, because they didn't put the grass in until after that Super Bowl in the middle. That's right. So that's right. That was also very hot, and it had another terrible thing: like the heat of the day over the course of the year, over the summertime anyway. The rains would fall on this superheated mat of the plastic, mm-hmm. the, the astroturf, and it would it the, the sudden change of, of of temperature would cause little tiny flecks of uh, dust. To, to split off. Green dust was in the base of this mat of, of carpet. And you didn't know. We used to play and you, 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 you crash into the ground and it, it used to grind your skin like, like sandpaper. It used to just take that top layer off and these little particles of um, plastic, they were turf. They would get into the wound. Everybody had the problem. Something that would go away in the course of a week. It used, we used to labor with it for about a, like a, a month. We had we all had infections from that, from that, and I'm glad they got rid of it. All right. How hard is it to grow a lawn in uh, in Miami? Come on, it's it, it's not. But if I'm being brutally honest here, it that that turf over the long haul saved the owners, all the owners that had it in all the stadiums. It saved them a lot of money from having to maintain turf and bring in new turf every year and then having to pay someone to to maintain it and oversee it. So, But it also ruined a lot of careers with knees and everything else and pounding you guys into the turf. And 
the, the at the Astrodome here, there was the only difference between the Astrodome and the other stadiums was that they with baseball and the rodeo here, they there was a level of dirt that was under it, but that's pretty negligible, I think, at that point. So you're still playing on well, almost playing on concrete. Zonka felt like his lungs were going to explode when he ran on it. Just I, I, his I, toes I, got broken. He he had he had sore toes all the time. Right. right. That was that was the other thing. Yeah. We all were pretty concerned about that. And collisions into the ground were a head slam on the ground. It was wow. pretty dangerous. I'm glad that they're trying to control that somewhat. Sure. And the surface now is a whole lot different. It's a different breed of grass and material and everything else. And it's supposed to play and cut just like regular grass. But anyway. Did you happen to see the, the Hard Knocks show with their operation? They throw down new lawn every game. The Dolphins have, I don't know, 50 acres of, of uh, turf. They groom for each. They take the best piece and they drop it. They put like 17 trucks down Wow! to the stadium every week. I, I didn't realize yeah, it was hundred people was, doing that. I didn't realize it was quite that frequent. I, I, I might be uh, in error. Mm-hmm. Well, it was, but but sure, that's certainly a lot better than playing on other things. And you get fresh turf, and yeah, you, you protect the players that way. So I like it. There's nothing more beautiful. I, I was mentioning that I was a captain against the Titans, honorary alumni captain, and it was so nice being on that field. Just exciting for me as a, as an old alumni. An old vet. Let me, I'll come back to that question in a minute, but I want to let me go back to '73 and when you first came in. Your teammate Howard Kendig mentioned that when he got to Miami in 1972, that the game preparation of the coaches in Miami was night and day compared to what he had he had experienced in Buffalo. And you found yourself playing quite a bit your rookie year. So, how important was it to have that that level of professionalism from the coaches? How much did that help you? Coach Shula had that loss against in, when he was with Baltimore, and he just developed this philosophy that you had to prep for games that mental mistakes were the enemy. And mm-hmm. It was his job to get the best talent on the field, and you just had to perform and achieve. Shula also had, I want to be the best at type of attitude. So there were regulations how many practice days that you could have. He always had the maximum practice days, the earliest report to camp. The, you know, the most number of hours on the field per day, three a day, four a day practices, walkthroughs, all kinds of film, clearly documented, more work put in by players and coaches, I'm quite sure, than any other team in the business. Shula was fighting his own demon of being a great coach who couldn't win a Super Bowl after Baltimore. And he knew that the winning edge, he has a book, The Winning Edge. That's what it was. You need to do it. He had a couple of things I thought he was wrong about. No water really? on the field. Right. Mm-hmm. The 12-minute run, I didn't think it was that it needed to be done like that. Uh, that was wrong. I thought he, he had a technique of, let me be clear, I loved the man, and I was never the person, but I didn't really like that there were a few monkeys in the barrel that he used. He he wanted to maintain a certain level of, of competence and you were the monkey in the barrel if you weren't maintaining it. You didn't want to be the monkey in the barrel. It weren't long for the team if you were. Sure. So a lot of that was sidestepping. It, it, it was easier to get it right and do it right than, than suffering the wrath. or the, A future of, I can't even imagine telling my grandchildren, oh, yeah, I made the Dolphins. And I was invited to camp, but I couldn't um, make the roster. 
Sure. That's the whole point is to make the roster. And I was a long shot. No one would guess that I would have made it as a rookie. I made it as a special teams player. And you said, I think you had some friends that told you that they had two outstanding guards on the team. and It was going to be tough for you to make it. But at the same time, they have to have backup offensive linemen. They have to have special teams players. So you had a way in. That's right. I, I had my thing. But as a rookie, here's another thing. I was a, a, a defensive tackle in my senior year uh, right. at Duke University. I didn't have right. the real experience I needed coming into camp uh, like that. So uh, it, it was a, a serious learning camp, uh, learning curve for me, especially with the, you know, the pros under, under Shula's uh, system. Uh, it, was, it, was, um, it was a challenge, and they challenged me as much as they can. Shula would say things like, Newman. You must be twins because no one person can be that bad. Those kinds of things. Very embarrassing. I remember this is my last day. I had a, a, a few weeks of this is the, ne- the next cut. Monty Clark was the offensive line coach at the time. He was a head coach with Detroit and San Francisco later on. Yep. Just, he used to do something for me. Um, he saw that I was a scrappy kid, a go-getter. What do you want me to do? What do you want me to do? He used to come over and let's walk off after the gassers and said, this is what I want you to do. I want you to study your playbook tonight. I don't want you to make it. I want you to knock down your mental mistakes by half tomorrow's practice. And then he would give me an evaluation the next day. Shula and company also had this scoring system for every practice. It was called the gut man system. Did you get your man? So when you knew your assignment, did you get him? And uh, they wanted that for a few reasons. One, to see if you had an inflated opinion of whether you got your man or not. I didn't have that problem. But they just wanted to see how reliable you were. Sure. In my rookie year, to talk about it, I made the club on the special teams. We still needed a backup guard. We had an all-pro in the end of his career named Irv Goody. Right. Irv Goody was uh, the backup guard behind Cooch and Little. And until I was trustworthy, and I became trustworthy during that season. Another thing happened, which was mind-boggling to me. The heat was so intense that that rookie year, I, I got dehydrated, and I started. I got a serious hamstring pull. Mm-hmm. I was unable to perform, and they couldn't cut me. I was injured. Uh, I was an active player that didn't play, did not dress for the, the, the first game. Okay. Against, San Francisco, against San Francisco. And, and then I, more and more, I started learning the system and I came on board. Uh, it was great. Absolutely. The best team that I could ever join. And to go to a Super Bowl as a rookie. Was, but, but on that, there, there's also, I felt I didn't want to get in the way. These were superstar professionals that were doing a, a repeat appearance to the Super Bowl. I was a a damn rookie. <laughs> I, I had to tread carefully and not interfere with anybody and just keep on supporting and, and improving. I did a pretty darn good job. Uh, I had this attitude from high school and college. Special teams, that's only for second teamers or third teamers. And then I opened my eyes and said, you're a second teamer and a third teamer. If you want to play <laughs> football, you better do that. Right. Larry Little and, and Wayne Moore, old uh, offensive line friends, said, you better do that. And you can do it. You can do it. It's a way to make the team. That's right. So the second week of the season, the you guys lost to Dolphins lost to Oakland. 
was there a sense of relief for you guys that 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 unbeaten streak had been broken and you didn't have to that monkey was off your back a little bit and maybe monkey on the back isn't the right expression but... i didn't think of it that way i thought of it as as it was very unfortunate it was a we were dynamically making records and it looked like we could continue to do that. And the further you go in that perfection, the more difficult it is to, to match that record, a record that still hasn't been uh, matched. Um, after it happened, it was almost like a death of a family member. You know, it was gone. All that wonderful thing of being a perfect team mm-hmm. was gone. And uh, people were quiet. We had team leaders, Jake Scott, and I remember coming up in a meeting and uh, making a lot of noise. That don't mean nothing, is in his words, those kind of things, that kind of accent. We're going to go ahead and win this Super Bowl. Let's not let this trip us up. That, that was uh, Jake Scott uh, giving us that speech. Shula, I remember, I'm trying to give it, you know, he can, he's at the auditorium that we're in and, and he's at the front there. And it's like, the wind was knocked out of him and you could tell he was, he was having a difficult time talking with us. Mm-hmm. And that's when Jake stood up and he, he the whole room got electric you know, two days after the game. Sure. And we, we never looked back. We weren't an ongoing perfect team. We had we only had the last season to, to look at. That's right. And then you guys went on a 10 game winning streak and then you lost one more in the regular season. And then you went on to win after that, the next, what, four games after that to close out the season and win that season. How wonderful. How yeah. wonderful. That's a wonderful introduction into the NFL. I can tell you this. The legends go, and you might have even heard this from some of your other people. Shula brought back, they lost against Dallas, I think it was. Oh, it's in Super Bowl six, And that was such a heartbreaker for everybody. Sure. And he brought uh, the team in at the beginning of the season, and they spent a few hours going over that film. And he was a good man and warm and kind. And, and all, But he said, this breakdown over here, that mental mistake, that prevented the five yards that we needed to that first down, and we could have won there. And he went through the game like that offense and defense, every one of them. I wasn't there, remember? I, I was the yes. next year. Right. Every one of them. Turned the, the their disappointment, their bit of disappointment into a, it couldn't have been broken. That they, they would not lose. Right. They 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 bought into Shula his program his craziness because he, he he was he had us hitting and practice more than anybody else. It, we had very very difficult practices, toughest things. He wanted to see what we were made of. Yeah. He, he 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 said we could have a debate about this, but I don't think so. I'm the boss. <laughs> yep. And the great thing about those early teams and the Super Bowl teams was that you guys didn't care who got the credit as long as you got the win. And you don't always see that in professional sports, at least among winning teams. You don't always see that with a lot of individuals. But that was the one thing that was so great about those Super Bowl winners was, yeah. that, was that those guys were willing to, I don't want to say humble themselves or put their egos aside, but th- they didn't care about getting the credit. And that speaks volumes for not only the team, but for those guys. Yes. And they were also very ambitious. Yes. They all wanted, 
you think about like like you had uh, Mercury Morris, Eugene Morris, and and Jim Kick, two super talented running backs, too many too many for the team, mm-hmm. and they both struggled so hard to to get the start. Right. You look at Mark Duper and Mark Clayton; mm-hmm. they work so hard. And I, I'm sure I, I I'd like to give myself some credit. Hopefully, Kuchenberg and Little would try a little harder. It's, you got pressure coming from behind. I know I felt sure. that. Yeah, there's a kind of rivalry that comes from underneath. It's a, a an upward cycle. It is, and that again speaks to everyone wanting to be great and buying into the to the program and and doing the extra work and wanting to be the the very best that they could be. Another Don Shula principle with being diligent and doing the extra work and you know, paying the closest attention to any the, the winning edge. When in Super Bowl eight, I'm sure you're, that you remember this. Bob Kuchenberg and Alan Page were teammates at at Notre Dame, and Kuchenberg knew that had he had lined up against him in practice, and he lines up against him. I think about the first uh, offensive series, and he comes back to the sideline. He says he's doing it. He's still doing the same thing. He was tipping off his moves or which way he was going to go, what he was or Page was on what he was going to do on a play based on his his hand or his alignment pressure. What have right. you? And then they 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 were able to make that adjustment and get better leverage. And then Zaka ran for 145 yards and two touchdowns that day. So, so that was a big that was a big key too. Tremendous. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yes, mm-hmm. sir. What was that day of the game like for the actual Super Bowl? Do you or for Super Bowl eight? Do you remember that about what the like, oh like yeah the the coming and going to the game and the game itself and then. Shula addressed the team afterward and all that good stuff. We were in Texas, in Houston. Nice stadium. Yes, sir. That's uh, right. uh, we had our we had our locker room. It was a kind of a rinking date locker room, and it was very narrow benches and our lockers that that we were in. Mm-hmm. And I'm 21 years old, and a Super Bowl. No one from my background had ever imagined that this could happen, and I was pretty excited. I couldn't sit down. You're looking on a Zoom right now, but the audience was not yeah. audible. I was like <laughs> jumping out of my chair. I was literally jumping out of my seat. Little turns over in his deep voice. What's wrong with you, rookie? I <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, just went over to the to the bathroom and did my 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 jumping around in there. Uh, <laughs> I said, I don't want to just I don't want to upset Larry Little. Uh, that's all I need. Anyway, during the game. Let me go back a little bit. My roommate in, in, in Houston, in, in Texas, was Gary Upremian. And the conversation was, do you have any concerns, Ed? Gary says. He said, yeah, I do. I'm afraid I'm going to make a mistake in the Super Bowl. I don't want to be a goat. I'm afraid it could happen. I, don't, I just really don't want it to happen. He said, this is something I can talk about. And he, he started talking about his pass in the, in the Super Bowl the year before. Mm-hmm. And he said, thank God they were going to kill me. Oh, thank God we ended up winning the game. So I had that in mind. Come on the game, and we're winning pretty handily. And everything's going well, and I'm at the sideline. And there's Manny Fernandez at the sideline. And I had just done a – it was like a punt and a, and a, and a punt return type of um, turnover. And he's going out on the field. And Shula's yelling, who's missing on the field? Um, I was not, they had 10 men on a punt. I missed a punt and, and nobody, they, they, their defense got confused. 
on a punt, our punt. So nobody rushed. Nothing happened. Nick Bono kind of grabs my face mask and he's grabbing it and tilting my head back and forth like this. That we lose this game. You're gonna, you're gonna kill you. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm looking at the scoreboard as the as the seconds toll off. I never thought that 20 seconds could feel three years. Mm-hmm. Hurry up, that. win this game. So we win the game, and then we're on the flight home, and everything is just wonderful. And the next really mag- just enormous experience was the, the awards banquet when they present us the Super Bowl rings. Yeah. And I, I, I felt Lord of the Rings, my precious the ring. Mm-hmm. I was, what was his name? Beagle? Siegel? Beagle? I remember. The gold. I want the ring. I want the ring. It was just a wonderful thing. I kept that ring and I've been keeping that ring in a safe place so I can be hungry for another one. That's the the idea. There you go. And then you guys had a pretty large fan reception at the airport that, that met you when you guys got back from Houston. Was that a big deal too? Of course. Sure. We had the best fans that you can imagine. Even today, people remember me, and they are very appreciative for those days. They had the, the hanky. They had the Miami Dolphins song. They came to the airport, and they crowded the place. They had 10,000 people waiting for us. But let me tell you something. That was every game. Yeah. The Dolphins had the perfect season, and every game mm-hmm. for the 1973 season, they were there at the airport. People would, can I give you a ride? Can I take you to dinner? Can I, you know, can I what do you want? Mm-hmm. They're really trying to just say hello and get a signature, get a, an autograph, or just a pat but, on the back. They were but, great. But, but the players parked amongst the fans in the stadium parking lot. So they got to know you, and you got to know them pretty well, too. This is true. Yep. We we were approached by fans as we walked into the stadium, and far more fans as we left the stadium. Oh, um, I, I never held back. Most of my teammates were that way. Yep. They were, you know, very good with the fans. We were, we have a good relationship with the fans in in, in the South Florida, as well compared to other leagues, uh, other teams in the league. We would do charity uh, events frequently. It was a, a main part of our way to show appreciation. Sure, sure. You guys still do that to this day, and you guys are always going to be rock stars, as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, uh, we, we've got a, like a record-breaking Miami Dolphin Cancer Challenge that I'm going to be doing in February. That's coming up next. And just last week, we had a, a Larry Little charity golf tournament for, he gives scholarships to, to, to inner city kids. So I'm very happy to help. Fantastic. Um, Love it. Good people. The, the whole organization is really high quality. Absolutely. And I, I'll speak for every Miami Dolphins fan here for just a minute. We're so fortunate that we have, that we have men like you that, and man, many others that, that, that are good Thank people. You. They're, they're good people. So we really appreciate you. I appreciate that as well. And I appreciate you. Yes, sir. Thank you. Thank you. Let's see. What else do we have here? So 73 ends and we moved to 1974. And that unfortunately features the infamous Sea of Hands game in Oakland. And that kind of ended that early run of the Super Bowl teams. Do you remember anything about that game? And was there a sense of something also great kind of coming to an end with Larry Zonka, Paul Warfield, Jim Kick, with those guys moving to the World Football League at that time? It's a complicated question. I, I think Kick, Warfield, and Zonka 
privately mm-hmm. had already signed with they they had, they actually signed in 73 but they were all allowed to to finish out their contracts for 74 if i recall it correctly no player knew it other than those guys right. they kept it totally silent yeah i'm sure that shula had major conversations with them and said you guys got to you know, perform your best here and uh, i didn't see any letdown at all oh no uh, it, it didn't even know anything about it sure um so they were going to to leave it was an unbelievable gutting uh, of talent where well, i felt that uh, they were 100% stand up i'm yeah. very appreciative for what they did right they have free agency in the nfl today but they didn't then no. So here was a chance to get a, a competitive bid. Uh, it doubled my salary. It it did. I gave you guys a lot of leverage, but I didn't understand it for a long time. I was like, geez, why did these guys leave the Dolphins? They're coming off these Super Bowl wins. And as I got older and older and started working for myself and everything else, I, I came to, to understand their decision a lot better. If we put out nice round numbers, if someone's paying you 50000 to do a job and then someone else... Some other company comes along and says, hey, I, I, I like what you're doing. Why don't you come work for us? We'll pay you 500000 What would any of us do? And they did what they felt like they had to do to take care of their families. Their hearts were with Miami. Sure. They went to Coach Shula. They went to, to Joe Robbie. Yep. They felt that, Mr. Robbie in particular, mm-hmm. it's reported, they felt that uh, um, this league was the, the World Football League was just not going to make it. Right. They felt they were just that there may be some losses, and that's that was the attitude. Um, there were only about 30, maybe 30 players um, actually transferred out of the league, out of the NFL and into the other league. But, and then they went, I think they made it about a year. They had a full season and about a year, half of another season, and that was it, as I recall. That's about right. And then, and then Zonka went to, I don't know what happened to Kick or Warfield. They may have retired, but Zonka went to the Giants. And right. we ended up getting him back in 79, if I'm not mistaken. Something that's, like that. that's correct. Kick ended up in, in Denver for a season. And then I think, oh, yeah. I think Warfield went back to Cleveland for a season or two. Yeah, he had a lot of turnover yeah. that year. It was very tough on Shula. How did he keep the team focused with all of that going into the next season? To me, you can bring in a... I don't know, Tom Smith or a Don Nottingham or a Benny Malone or some other running back to perform running back duties. But to me, you can never replace what an individual brings to to that position and to the team and leadership and everything else. Your question has a couple of elements. Shula knew that that any kind of distraction could lead to a loss. So that's a distraction. We've got players that are abandoning the NFL. He controlled that by insisting that they not talk about it. He insisted that everybody talk Miami Dolphins, be loyal to the Dolphins, and only address Dolphin issues. Zonka kick Warfield, they didn't do any interviews on going to the other league. It never hit the papers. I I never saw it. So he he did what he could. He didn't mention me that they were leaving and they were franchise players. They were, they really disproportionately hurt the Dolphins that year because we got gutted so badly. Yeah. We all missed them. The season ended. It was like, where's Zonka? Where's Kick? Where's Warfield? Yeah. It was like, 
maybe people in the know they knew, but uh, yeah. it was just a very sad day. And we had the emergence of Don Nottingham the next year as a fullback, Nat Moore as a receiver mm-hmm. started you know, ascending, and they did a pretty good job. And they were damn good players, but they weren't all the thing. They weren't that level. And that's particularly for Zonka and Warfield. Yeah. Those guys, and, and the attitudes that you were talking about, those two are, mm-hmm. are, are the epitome of it. Warfield and Zonka could never say anything negative about anybody. Right. They were just the consummate sports personalities, highly competitive, highly precise and talented. Right. Coachable. They were great. They were great people. One thing that kind of bothers me about sports is that there's this, I don't want to say next man up, but there's this attitude or there's this philosophy that everyone is replaceable. But again, you can't replace uh, the personality of of a Larry Zonka, a Paul Warfield, a Jim Kick, and the leadership and what they bring to the group. You can't put a value or a price on that to me, but that's just me. I, I believe you're right. When you have these kinds of great talents on the field and you, know, you have a difficult time where you need three points, it's right. do or die. Right. They bring that out of you. These kind of teammates, they make a real strong effort. And I can do that. That's right. That's how it gets contagious. It does. Good people. That was one, one more reason why you guys are the best. So sometime around the mid-1970s, and help me with the timeline here, but so sometime around the mid-1970s, you, you were diagnosed with thyroid cancer and you overcame two surgeries and you were able to continue your football career. At At what point did that happen and how were you able to persevere and resume playing? I had my rookie year and there was no problem. I came into camp as a the second year player. Mm-hmm. And if you're familiar with the term a goiter, I, I had something like a third of an orange popping out of the out of my near the Adam's apple okay. on the right side. Okay. My my grandmother spotted it. I didn't even see it. It was invisible to me until she short pointed it out. What's that? Oh, well, I better talk to the doctor about that. So I spoke with Herbert Virgin as the team doctor at the team physical. And he said, you probably have a virus of some kind and it's inflamed your thyroid. Let me give you some pills. He gave me some thyroid pills and it was a misdiagnosis. My grandma, we played the, I called her up. Grandma Pauline said, that, that, nothing's happening with that. You got to get, you got to get that looked at. So she went ahead and um, um, called a, a, a top surgeon in New York mm-hmm. for for a, an evaluation, and they were intrigued. An NFL player. We played the Jets in November, and we we made arrangements to see Doctor Max, and he diagnosed the thing and said it's got to come out. He says it's November. Can I finish the season? He says this is extremely slow growing, and uh, yes, um, you can. The problem then was, I talked about distraction. Boy, this was a distraction. I I have a cancer, and I'm playing football. And uh, uh, that was all a lot of toughness, a lot of mental toughness to to get through November. And I had that operation in in January of 75. This next doctor was well-known for partial uh, surgeries. He didn't take a lot of tissue if he didn't need to. And I needed my neck to, to play NFL football. They did the operation, and, it, and uh, they only took the uh, enlarged lobes of the, of the thyroid. 
But later they did lab tests and uh, they, they came up with a, uh, it was a malignancy. And he said, we got to go in and do a total. They did a partial and then had to do a total. So you can still see the scar yeah. went from shoulder blade to shoulder blade along the bottom of it. And they took it out. I have to take a pill. And the doctor, I mentioned my concerns. He says, I don't know if I can ever play ball again. He says, your neck muscles will mend perfectly. Your body chemistry, your hormonal chemistry will come back perfectly with the supplements. Okay. If, you, if you can't make the dolphins, it's because of you. <laughs> it's okay. not because of the cancer. My work is done here. Wow. In that hospital, you can't imagine this. I just had these operations. After the operations on the next morning, I'm doing sit-ups and push-ups. It's February. I got to get ready for the NFL season. I went over to the the gym the following year, and that's when things really kicked into gear. I started training like no human being ought to do. And it's a a little bit of an insight that you have a, a fork in the road. You can feel bad for yourself and lick your wounds and go off and say, I have a good excuse. Or you can go the other right way and go into the land of pain and uh, overcome the cancer and overcome the strength deficit from losing all that time. And I was very hardworking. Nobody could keep up with me. I People would give an hour a day for off-season conditioning. I was giving three or four hours every day. And that was a, a major step up in my career. Adversity turned into um, opportunity. That's right. You're only what, 24, maybe 25 at the most when, right. when this happens. But did it come back again? At some point, did you have to have a second surgery or was that? The thyroid surgery was one episode. Mm-hmm. Over a 10-day period, there were two operations. While it was on the table, they took a frozen tissue sample. And the technology wasn't there to do it in the hospital. They had to send it out to some lab in Minnesota or something. Mm-hmm. I don't know where. And it came back positive. I was in the hospital the whole 10 days. The 10th day was the second operation, I think. That, that's what happened. I did have other major operations. In my, the fatty area of my stomach, There was I, I had a growth, a, a fatty tumor, and it had to be operated on twice. This okay. was after I, I finished football, though. And I, okay. I survived. I'm, I'm yeah. a cancer survivor. It enabled me to get into law and into becoming a judge and making my life count. It's, again, dedication and rising above adversity, not giving up ever, just finding a way. That's right. And that's those qualities are, are the big reason why Don Shula gravitated towards you. You guys maybe had a great relationship is because you, we did. you embodied a lot of the same similarities that he had. I, I remember getting invited to his 90th birthday. It was just before he passed away. Right. I gave him a little anecdote. They were giving speeches. You can toast people. You can roast them pretty badly. <laughs> and uh, the players love to do that. I came up and I, I couldn't do that uh, with him. And I told the story. The point was, as, as I'm telling the story, I'm watching his face and he's looking like he's my father. You did such a good job, Ed. I'm so happy that I stayed with you. I got those feelings from him. I'll tell you the story I told about him. It was in the mid-70s. We had a a reporter from the Sun Tatler 
I think it was a Fort Lauderdale paper. Ed Plasted was the reporter. We were facing the Cardinals in a Thanksgiving Day game in New Orleans or, or in St. Louis. I don't remember. All right. Anyway, this Plasted character wrote this article, said that the Miami Dolphins were going to be the turkey dinner. He was saying that we were toast. We were going to be eaten alive right. by the opponent. And uh, we went through the game. Jim Langer, Bob Kuchenberg, they grabbed – oh, excuse me. I'm getting ahead of myself. Uh, we, we were kicking their ass in the game. This article spurred us to you know, really very effective play. We, the game ended up in the 55 to 28 type of score. It was a runaway. And Conrad Dobler was on the team. Right. Conrad Dobler at the time was an offensive lineman known as a bad boy. He was a dirty player. Right. And uh, Bob Matheson was towards the end of his career. He got, was it Bob Matheson or Vern Denherter? No, it was, I think it was Vern Denherter got a, also towards the end of his career. He got a little bit of a, of a knee injury. Who did this? It was Conrad Dobler. It wasn't even Conrad Dobler, but everybody started fighting on the field. Both sidelines, we were beating them badly, and both sidelines came off, including myself. There was a riot on the field. 50 players, 50 players, 100 players were on the field throwing punches and fighting and all that stuff. Shula, for his part, he's trying to block. No, you can't go on the field. You're going to get fanned. Everything, don't do that. We come back from the game. When the game's over, Langer and Kuchenberg grabbed Ed Plested and threw him in a shower. I thought that was, he was wallowing, and they threw him in the shower for writing that article. We got back to Miami. And Shula had the, the protocol of we would watch the entire film, both offense and defense, right? He said, I got this letter here from Commissioner Roselle. And he reads us the letter, and it's scathing. It, you, know, you can't do this. You can't be walking on the field and fighting. And these are the fine schedules. And you're 4,000, and you're 2,000, and you're 800, and you're 1,700. Different. They did a score, and they, they gave everybody these fines. She was beaming at us. He's, he's glaring at us. He says, I never want to see this kind of behavior happening again. And he gives two thumbs up. Says, good job. And I said, good job, guys. Good job. So what he said was different than what he did. And we all said, all right, let's go on to the next game. Got that yeah. behind us. That was, the one was a good story. Is that the one where Greasy had six touchdowns? touchdowns? Yes, he did. And he was wearing glasses at the time, I think. He was Peabody. He used to call him Peabody from the cartoon. So you became a, a full-time starter at, at right guard for the Dolphins in 79. What was playing in the Orange Bowl like, just the crowd and the, the electricity of it? And you know, we, we briefly mentioned the, um, the epic in Miami against, against San Diego. What was, the, what was the atmosphere like playing in the Orange Bowl? Um, we had um, musical chairs for, for offensive linemen when the injuries occurred. And, and um, Wayne Moore suffered a bad, uh, our left tackle, he suffered a bad injury in his knee. And Bob Kuchenberg, unselfishly, as an all-pro left guard, accepted um, and was an all-pro as a left tackle. I think that's true. I don't know if he got it a left guard or left tackle. I was the starting left guard for most of that year. But later on, it was Larry Little. I'm known as the right guard for the Miami Dolphin. I eventually succeeded and, and had my best years. The last three were uh, at right guard. 
I wasn't able to beat out either one of them with a healthy uh, Kuchenberg or Little. It was Larry Little went up to tackle when we had the expansion draft. And again, unselfishly, I was the utility guy and I ended up doing quite well. Now, with regard to the question about the orange ball, it was a grand old lady at the time I played. It was already 50 plus years old. Sure. Uh, and the fans treated her a little roughly. They, the Dolphins <laughs> got them so excited. They used to pound on the, on the bleachers, these concrete structures. They had concrete blocks. We used to come out of the out of our locker room in the tunnel. Shula said, "Wear your helmets. Concrete blocks will be falling down." The building was falling down. It was uh, truly amazing with the volume, the pitch of the seats had intense volume of fans screaming, especially when you know, the, the tension was high. You had to stop them, or or you had to score, or something along that line. And they were. Uh, Drown out uh, the, the signal callers, uh, especially for the other, the other team. And uh, I remember frequently the coach, the uh, referees would go to Coach Shula. You have to actively ask the, the fans to stop, or we're going to penalize you for delay of game. The Dolphins, we're going to they were going to penalize the Dolphins for delay of game. Shula said, "Tell them to be quiet, quiet." We had to wave our hands to the crowds. You know, quiet, quiet. Uh, we, we we were able to get to get through. They had these hankies that they used to, yeah. terrible towels for oh, Pittsburgh. From, uh, they, from, uh, they picked it up. But the, the Dolphins had it first, yeah. uh, I think. And they uh, they used to, the whole visage, the whole vision of the uh, of the stadium was white hankies going like crazy. And they would sing their songs, Miami Dolphins. I used to, I knew where my wife and kids were in the stands. So I, I'd pound my fist on the chest and point to them that I loved them. And at the start of the game, and the fans that were in that area thought I was talking or, or signaling to them. Mm-hmm. And I used to get a kick out of it every time. It'd be about six hundred fans would be going pound their chest and going like that to me. <laughs> That's pretty cool. I'll give you a contrast story. We were playing the. We, this is many years earlier. We were playing the Patriots in in New England. I think it was New England. Yes. And we had a rookie named Tom Wicker, and our these two these two guys were in the, near the, near the field, just in the stands, just a few seats up, and they were razzing him terrible. Tom, you're saying everything bad. Sure. You were you're not a man, or you can imagine the words. Yep. And we were losing, and I was a little emotional about it, and I didn't like them picking on my teammate, so I asked a. a, a Another linebacker, Bruce Bannon, his name was Bannon, mm-hmm. said, come over with me. He said, you see those guys over there at Sierra? They're ripping into this guy, Wicker. Let's give them a little dose. So we both got a, bottle, a couple of uh, <laughs> cans of Gatorades, and then we just casually walked up, and we threw them in their face. Shula, the game's over. Nobody knows anything about it. Shula calls me and Bannon into the office the next week. Uh-oh. I got a letter from Commissioner Roselle here, number 68, number 58, number 64, mm-hmm. were uh, said to have accosted two off-duty police officers with buckets of Gatorade. And we want to close this down before it becomes anything. We want you to write letters, each of you, apologizing. I never wrote that letter. <laughs> Bannon did. 
I did. I'd like to see that letter. <laughs> uh, I don't want to write that letter because those guys were abusive. They were terrible. Yeah, that's that's funny, but you know, and, all- and you can, that's also a contrast. The fans around the league, some of them are crazy. New England and and uh, and Oakland. Buffalo, and Oakland. Oakland is pretty tough. Buffalo yeah. was about as hostile fans as you can get. They not once, numerous times, tried to tip our bus over as we were coming to the stadium. This is in Buffalo. Oh, they, they, they they would have fans on both sides. They would push the, oh my the uh, gosh. you know the, the bus left and right trying to knock us over. Oh my god, these guys are crazy. And then it used to be, it'd be about seventeen degrees out, very extremely cold. They used to have these conduits, like sewage conduits, in the parking area. Gosh, they used to wallow in that stuff in the freezing weather. Oh my god, these people—they're all drunk. Really tough people in the in, wow. in Buffalo. Super fans. Do you remember in the CF Hands game? Do you remember a fan coming out of that black hole and? in Oakland and someone coming down and they either punched, I think they punched Bonacani and then Fernandez and Anderson and everyone just started to wail on this guy. And they finally, they had to get security to, to come on the field and pull him off. It's a story I didn't know. Yeah. That was in the sea of hands. It was right. I think it was right after that play and someone some what's the word? Yeah, the, the Oakland fan. Some Oakland fan came down out of the stands, out of their stands in that black hole end zone. I don't want to say <laughs> I don't want to call their fans nut jobs or wackos, but I'll just say over enthusiastic. Okay. They had some unusual people in those days. Ted Hendricks. I remember he came to camp on a horse. He introduced he came into camp riding a horse one season. And they had Alzado who's Somewhat crazy and sure. a few others. Oh, uh, yeah. Madden, I, I think this is worth mentioning. Mm-hmm. I thought Shula was a really fine man, exemplified greatness. Madden said some things at a time he shouldn't have said it. He they, 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 he said something, a coke came out, I wish we had beaten him when we played him in the, the 17-0. and I'm glad I was able to um, break this perfect season. It was a poke in the eye. Right, And it, it didn't have to happen. Madden, I think, made a mistake there. You, you don't have to kick Shula at that time. That's just not necessary. Or He know, said or some bad things time. about that Shula's not all that type of stuff. Wow. It's kicking him when he was down. I didn't like that. And that same year, I think we played Oakland in the playoffs, and, and we beat them. That's correct. For the for 73, that was the, was that the AFC championship? Yeah. To, to go to the Super Bowl, is that right? Yeah, yeah. So how sweet it is. Yep, yep. There you go. We got him. Mm-hmm. Let me see. I'm going to mention Tony Nathan here. I, I wanted to ask you about the hook and, and and lateral play. How important was that play in that game? It's more of a context thing. Yeah. As, if I'm not mistaken, we lost the game. It, yes. It was a Winslow had a superb effort at the end of the game. I think he blocked a kick. Yeah, from Von Schaumann. Was it Ron Shaman? I yeah. don't remember. Yeah. It was, I looked at the game and I thought it was just dreadfully hot mm-hmm. on the field. The temperature was about 88. It wasn't that dreadfully hot. It was exhausting. The overtime nature of it mm-hmm. was exhausting. Strzok came in as our backup quarterback. I don't know if he came in for Woodley. I think it was David Woodley. Yes. 
Yeah, you had that. It was Woodstock that year. That's right. David Woodley was an extremely talented scrambler. Mm -hmm. He had a pretty good arm, and, and he knew the system, and he, he did pretty well. But the danger was the scrambling. When they figured that out, they, they contained him pretty well. Right. Shula, in, for whatever reasons, he, he gave the nod to, um, to Don Strzok. Don Strzok had been calling the plays. He was a great quarterback in his own right. He was just in the shadow of Morrill and, and Greasy. Right. Now Woodley. And he just was the spark. And we got in the huddle. They called up the play. It was a pass play, and I didn't know anything about the wrinkle, about the, the, the hook and lateral of mm -hmm. the wrinkle. I don't remember them even saying it. They might have um, said it internally. Keep the play alive, do this hook and lateral. Right. I think we had practiced that maybe two or three times out of a game to see if we ever needed it. And I remember, holy mackerel, they just intentionally lateraled that. And we took the lead. But what happened there is we knew that we could win any particular game. That was the lesson we left the game with. We lost that game. Right. But it was anything can happen. It was, I remember coming in off the field, and uh, I don't think I had any any strength left. Uh, I had, was facing Louis Kelcher. Yep. Louis yep. Kelcher. Mm -hmm. was my opponent. Yeah. And Louis weighed about 20 pounds more than me. Okay. And I, I remember he had a uh, freakishly large head. Mm -hmm. It was like like a horse. He was he was really a, a kind of guy that used to grind down people. Yeah. So I'm a very strong guy that overpowers people. We had a royal battle during the game. It's going into overtime, and we were both super exhausted. And I remember right at the end of the game saying, this is no time to mess up. This is no time. This yeah. is You have to keep your concentration. You have to make your play perfect. And he was just, he was, Louis Kelcher was really a very, commendably, a very stout opponent. In the, the overtime, I remember looking under my armpit and looking at him on the defensive side of the line. And I could tell he was exhausted, and that's all I needed to say. Right. I, I was, he has to be feeling this. I wonder if he's feeling this. Yeah. I was just, I was running on fumes, but I kept it up. And I just seeing his weakness is yeah. uh, what, what made the difference. He just had his hand in, in his head. Yeah. And going, oh my God, it was the last 10 minutes of the game. And that's the advantage of the heat and, and humidity right there. Mm -hmm. And then your drive and determination to, to succeed it was known as a great game but we lost the game yep yeah what can you say you give them you give them credit so you got to play with two hall of fame quarterbacks you got to play with bob greasy and with dan marino bookends and bookends yeah what did each of them bring to the huddle all right and only of course he's first he deserves it bob greasy called his own plays he was very friendly but private and aloof among the players. He was easy to talk with. You can have one-on-one -on -one conversation, but he didn't go to a lot of parties and he wasn't that, he wasn't flamboyant. He was just a leader and he was all business. And he was 
a brilliant quarterback. He used to come into the locker room and talk with Howard Twilley, whether they were studying the Wall Street Journal. It was a good old family. That was Greece. He was, he had a gravitas of a Hall of Fame. He was extremely good in the community, a giant as a quarterback, and he knew what he was doing. Marino, for his part, was just raw talent. He just had that, the luck of, of Mark Late, Mark Duper, mm-hmm. the combination of things coming together was just um, incredible. It was super electric. Where Greasy didn't really, you wouldn't find him at a party that you were at. Marino was at that party that, that you were at. He was more of a social and he was with the players. And Greasy didn't take us out to dinner. Marino took us out to dinner. Right. Not very often, but he did. He was thankful. Greasy used to say, I know the offensive line is protecting me and giving me that time. He was, he was more open. But Greasy was a pure passer. Actually, before I got there, Marino was a pure passer. Greasy was a scrambling quarterback before he became a, the perfect season quarterback. You, you beat me to it. It was crazy. Yep. Uh, yeah, I think can... that came from Shula correctly. You're not to get hit, Bob. But You get hit enough. Don't put yourself in a place where you're going to get hit. Right. So and he stopped doing that. You have to protect yourself and get out of the way. And it, he, he wasn't the biggest quarterback. He wasn't he wasn't the biggest guy. Marino was a bigger guy, 6'3", or however tall Dan is, and built a little sturdier than Greasy was. So, so Greasy had to do it a little, a little differently than, than some other quarterbacks, I'm sure. When I came in 73, Greasy wasn't uh, scrambling at that point. Not often. Right. He would scramble if he had to. Right. But he, he would avoid it if he could. Uh, but I understand in 69, 70, he was, I don't know when he came in, he was a scrambling quarterback in the early days. Right. Right. Yeah, I was going to say, he probably started off doing that a little bit, just trying to get his feet wet and then pulled off of that as time went on. Yeah. But, yeah. As far as the offensive line itself, there were, we've talked about a couple of the Hall of Famers here that you play with, Larry Little, Jim Langer, and then Dwight Stevenson. Dwight Stevenson. Yep. Yeah. And they were in the trenches with you. And then I'm, I'm going to I'm going to include Bob Kuchenberg in that group because I think he should be in the Hall of Fame also. I do too. Hey, how important is it for an offensive line to not only be a a cohesive unit, but to maybe be a, a, a band of brothers, if you will, both on and off the field? How, how important is that? A quarterback is a unit unto himself. Mm-hmm. The running backs, they have some support for each other, but there are fewer of them. The largest single unit is the offensive line unit, and it works as an integrated whole. If, for instance, in a pass play, could form a traditional classic, you have a, a shape that they, they, they use to, to protect it, the, the quarterback. It breaks down, the quarterback is sacked, and, and, and the work of, of five play players is wasted if one player breaks down. There's integration because... Uh, um, the left tackle and the left guard have to worry about a linebacker and a, and a defensive end or, def- or or a tackle. They're going to be doing everything they can, and uh, you have to have rules uh, on um, you get that guy then, and I get that guy, and uh, if that happens, it takes a lot of practice uh, you know, to have that timing. And there's also a lot of uh, misdirection. Like you you have codes 
between the players. So that, that you build up a, a means of communication. Right. And you build up a way of succeeding with your particular assignments by working together. And it, it comes down to inches at, at times. Dwight Stevenson and I had a, a, a wonderful tandem block where we would hit the nose tackle on a bubble defense. I'm, a, I'm on a linebacker, and we're trying to knock the backside, cave him to the left a little bit as I'm a right guard. So Dwight and I double team. That nose tackle was toast. Yep. Because that's teammate working. If the linebacker would cut underneath to the left of Dwight, then he would fall off and I would keep. And we were able to watch that. There's tremendous coordination to do that. Most of the time, the linebacker would drift in the backfield and I would slip off and pick him up and seal him off. If he didn't crash the line at the snap, the linebacker, I would find him on pursuit. It was great. He didn't even see me coming. I'm coming off full speed. Bang, right in the chin. You have those kinds of things, and there's no limit. There's pass protection. There's tandem play, blocking, double teaming. There's misdirection. When you come into nickel situations, for the for those that don't know, you have a, a situation where they can use a very deep secondary. They're afraid of the touchdown pass. Uh, so they're going to use a blitzing on a nickel package. Sometimes they call it a quarter package. There are different safeties and, and quarterbacks that could blitz. So you have two linemen that are there with five offensive linemen. There are going to be some blitzers, one or two blitzers. You have to have a scheme to pick them up. And I had to work very hard with the priorities with Dwight or any of the other linemen. Sure. If he goes here, then I'm going to go, then he's my man. Otherwise, it's your man. Right. There's, there's a lot of pointing. And there's also a lot of fake out. Right. You have to have a code that this is not true, what you're saying right now. So you have means of communication. You're telling them, you're telling the defense, Ed, I'm going to take number 70, 72. Right. But I'm not. Sure. I'm giving him a false signal. So right. I'm making him look at me, and then Dwight would crash into him. Or Eric Laxa would, would catch him a little off guard. That's how it works. Good. It was very good to be with those players and coaches. Monty Clark, John Sandusky. Yep. Tremendous. Uh, offensive line coach, Don Shula, tremendous. My whole career with one coach, that's amazing. Yeah. 13 years right. with one coach. And the circumstances of my leaving, I could touch on that a little bit. I never wanted to say that I wasn't good enough. That's why I left football. My, my demise was because of a contract dispute. I had a knee injury, a final knee injury. Right. In typical fashion, I got back 100%. I was ready for another all-pro year. I was at the last year of my contract, and it had to be negotiated. And under the rules, you can't report to camp if you don't have a contract. Right. I asked for a large amount of money. They asked for money for an injured player. And I said, you have to take my word for it. I am fully recovered. We can build in incentives if you want to do this. There has to be a component of a, of a guarantee. They said no. I parted. I made a speech to the. I made a presentation to the to the papers. How sad I was, and I, I, I'll always be a dolphin. I still will always be a dolphin. Sure. The season went on. At the end of preseason, Kuchenberg left. 
a, a backup guard named Jeff Taze and Steve Clark. They, I think they were started that then. They all three got hurt. And I had just given this departure speech that I'm perfectly able to play football, but I can't go because of a contract dispute. Right. Shula called me. He called me on the phone and said, I saw the paper. We, we do need you. And please come out. And I said, Coach, I, I haven't been working out. I, I haven't been training the way I do to be where I am. I, I, when, when we had that contract dispute, I said, I, I have to quit now. I, I don't, I don't want to do it. I, had, I quit the, the uh, lifting, but not the team. The team just said we can't reach agreement. He said, don't worry about that. He said, I'll, I'll give you some, a few weeks. You can get into shape. I know Coach Shula. Sure. He would have started me the first day, and, and that, that wouldn't have been right. Wouldn't be fair to me, wouldn't be fair to him, wouldn't be fair to the fans. So I knew it was time. I was flattered that he asked me. You had just come off of a first-team All-Pro season in 1984. But I guess they felt like the knee. Was that your third knee injury, and was it the same knee? Third knee injury and the second on the right knee. Okay, that, that was my question. And that knee today has got titanium and plastic in it. Oh, wow. I'll tell you another story. This one is not really complimentary for myself on this. I'm trying to think if it was that. No, it wasn't that game. 1982, I suffered a knee injury in November, late November. Okay. And I might be more off on the dates. I came in the offseason, and Sandusky, was the offensive line coach, called me into the office and said, we need to make reports on how did this accident occur. They need statistics. How did your knee get blown out? So I said, sure, I'll, I'll, go, I'll show you. We, we went to the films, and it was about... 90 seconds before the end of the game. It happened on the same play Larry Little got injured. He, he, he twisted an ankle and they took him off the field. And I looked up and I said, he's off the field. We're, we're, we're at the end of the game. I need to stay in the game until he comes back, until we have a backup. I think I'll stay in the game until it's the best we can do. I finished the game. I saw the coach. I saw the doctor. The doctor says, you got a bone knee. Sandusky says, come, show me where this happened 90 seconds earlier. And he sits me down and he says, Ed, you can never do that. You stayed in a game with a broken knee. You can never do that. I'm not in the business to, to make people cripples for the rest of their lives. Fortunately, I would. With the game finished, and I, did, I didn't aggravate the injury at all. We were behind, so we were passing all the time. And my knee allowed that. If we had to run or drive block, I would have fallen down. That, that's the first time they called a play that I couldn't do, I would have fallen down. But the last 90 seconds were throwing passes is what happened. That was Sandusky saying, you're brave, but that was foolish. You shouldn't have done that. I promised him I would never do it again. I probably would do it again. <laughs> that's football though, right? You do what you have to do. I can tell your fans something that, it's, and it's an inside thing. This adrenaline has a funny thing. Is it does it makes you crazy? You don't think rationally. You, you don't feel pain. You don't feel like you're unable. You feel yeah. super. And that's what happened. I, I wasn't ready to. My body wasn't talking to me, like like it should be. I was just it was 
not a good thing. A lot of players are playing when they shouldn't. That's an interesting component that that we don't always think about or consider or factor in is the adrenaline and what goes into that and what goes into sustaining yourself out there on the field. There's another thing if we're talking about it. Everyone knows that if you're not the starter, then the backup will become the starter. That's right. You don't you want to talk about what's best for the team, but inside you're thinking, I'd like to be the starter. You don't want to sit down and you never want to let up. Right. Right. Yeah. We're looking at the, the Dolphins today. This, co- this coach is doing a great job sitting down players. I, I don't know if you've been watching it. McDaniels is like, like Hill is not going to play this week. He could play. Right. But he's preserving him for playoffs, I think. Well, uh, and, and, the schedule doesn't let up. The schedule's pretty tough down the stretch. Wilkins is our defensive tackle. He had a little bit of a groin pull. Mm-hmm. Under Shula, they put a little spit on it. And you'll go out there. You're fine. But under McDaniels, it's impressive. He's He knows that they have the work ethic. And they're if they're saying they're hurt, they really are hurt. And unfortunately, I don't want to use the word diluted, but the season's longer. There, there are 17 regular season games now as opposed to 14 when you first started. So that's a big, You're right. that's a real big difference. It is. I, I, I could say something else. There's a little bit of a modifier on that is sure. when there's an injury, it's an explosive injury. Right. If you get through a game, I don't know that really significantly imp- makes it probable you'll get injured on a second game or a third game. Right. It can. You can have a weakness. My injuries were, I had a, that, that final injury I had in a preseason 1985, that right knee. It was likely earned in the Super Bowl the year before, the, the winter before. Before I probably had a, a partial tear yeah. because the play, I, don't know, I think his name was Pelham or something, the defensive end fell flat on his face. He tackled just, our, our O tackle, Maxwell just threw him down on the ground. So they were rushing the quarterback. Everybody's rushing the quarterback. And I'm looking to help somebody. And he just surged on, on a crawl. He surged into my, into my leg straight up. Yep. It was a tiny little bump, and it popped. Did you see Phillips' injury? He had a Achilles heel? I did see that, yep. Those are pre-existing injuries. Those kinds of things, I, I don't know that there's anything you can do. You can't really rest those things, sure. the, those kinds of injuries. Hamstrings, definitely you can sit people out. They can get worsened. Sure. But certain, there are a number of other muscular things that, that you can let those things rest a, a little bit. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I, th- I think there's some science to this. You played in Super Bowl eight for the 1973 season, and then the team didn't make it back to the Super Bowl until 1982 against Washington and then 84 against San Francisco. Did you think you had a good chance to pick up another Super Bowl ring? And it, obviously you did. Did you feel like the team was absolutely poised to win that in, in those games against Washington, did you feel like you matched up? And then how did you feel about the matchup against San Francisco? Again, I think I'm a little different than a lot of your, your guests that you, that you interviewed. Sure. I, I really was thinking in terms of, I got to get my man on the next play. Okay. And have a string of 65 or 70 of those plays right. going. Uh, um, uh, beyond that, I would, encourage my teammates try to be a, a, a leader uh, and, and you know 
if there's ever a time to pull that belt strap, it's now. Right. And I'm a veteran. This is the time. No mistakes. 100% effort. Be snappy. Get your assignment done. Get your men. That was the kind of conversation I was having in, in, in those Super Bowls. We never had an attitude of this is a luck. No. You had to have a measure of luck for every game. We might have had advantages, but the better team doesn't always win man for man. I think we showed that against the God, hope no one's angry at me. I think we should have beat Tennessee uh, last week. It was just man for man talent. It was just the team was flat. It brings in something about this magical element of momentum. It's such an interesting um, psychological thing. It happens. Something comes over a team and they either go flat and they're dead or they they become superstars and nothing can stop them. You see these kinds of waves coming right. out. Sometimes they're triggered by a fight or a coach or an incident of some kind. A lot of it has to do with, and this is this goes to credit to Shula. Try to imagine if you went to a, a fast food, it's called a Burger King, and you paid your bill. You paid it. Yeah. And you, all right, let me have my hamburger. When you pay for the result, we all paid for the result, and we didn't get the hamburger on those Super Bowls. Right. We worked right. hard to get those two, and it's extremely disappointing. You remember it, but most of the fans don't remember the, who took second place, who took the AFC champion, the conference champion yeah. in, the, in the Super Bowl. Yeah. That's the nature of it. Yeah, and the, especially in the Washington game in Super Bowl 17, they... Riggins. Riggins and then Theismann. I have to give give credit. Theismann made a great play on batting that that interception down. He had presence of mind, didn't he? That was Kim Bocamper. And it just just seems like in a game like that where it's really close, the other team just... He would have ran it in. Kim would have run that touchdown in. Easily. Easily. He just had the presence of mind to turn around and bat it down. and It, It was amazing. That's football. So it was a thing that came out of that is I told you Shula had the attitude offensive linemen needed to be fast and lean, mm-hmm. big, fast, lean. You couldn't get them any bigger than 275. <laughs> the, the hogs, they were coming in. They average about 315. Yeah. Shula came out of that game and let us know. So we're going to try to we're gonna let you carry more weight. The game actually evolved on that game. We used to have a much more feature trapping or sweeping sure. offensive linemen in motion. We still do it. The Dolphins still do it, but not as frequently. Sure. It became a different kind of game, more of a passing game and more play action, less pulling. Let me get into the Don Shula, the legal aspect of things. So on your Facebook page, there's a, a great quote that Don Shula made about you. And I, I assume that this was when you were – first running for county judge is maybe when this happened. And the quote is, and I quote, I remember in 1984, Ed Newman starred as an all-pro offensive guard. The Miami Dolphins went on to the Super Bowl. Simultaneously, Ed commenced classes in law at the University of Miami. There was never a conflict. Ed is a hard worker and practices discipline in everything he does, unquote. So when you're in your second career with you know being a, an attorney and then a county judge, it's very easily to see those shoeless similarities and being diligent, over prepared, and being the best at your job every day. 
So I'm touching a little bit on what we talked about already, but what was your relationship like with Coach Shula and, and then how did that winning edge permeate the entire organization? I have a, a lot of things to talk about, Coach. First of all, and as, you know, as, as two men can, I'd lo- I loved him as a coach. Sure. Uh, just a really special man. He was charitable. He was good in the community. He was a great communicator. And he was a very nice man, unless he was coaching you. That's right. He was the toughest son of a gun you could imagine. I mean, there was no playing around. There was no pleasing him. Every season, he said, my door is open if anybody wants to discuss things. I'll go there, and I want to start. Your time will come. He gave me that speech a lot of times. <laughs> I evolved. I got a little wiser. and I need to. I want to be at uh, my time. I'm right. Uh, I'm ready to play. I'm starting material right now, like, like a fifth-year player, fourth-year player. I can't negotiate a, a decent contract because I'm a backup. Let me go. He said, that's not my job. I'm not letting you go. <laughs> you're, you're our insurance policy, and I don't care about the money. All right, all right. Your day will come. And then and eventually um, it did come. I remember I would come in there, and I was about to buy a house, the house I'm in right now. And uh, I said, Coach, I'd like to have a little bit of an idea on my are you highly interested in trading me? So it's not good business for coaches to talk to players about whether you know, they're trading them or not. So no, I'm not. But I, I got the message. He wasn't thinking about trading me, at least for the prices that they were asking at that for the trade. Shifting over now a little bit, I'm at, I'm at a football, and I'm running for judge, and I wanted to make flyers that you can hand out to the, the voting public. And that quote was the subject. And I went to him, I visited him at his office and asked him if he would give me a favorable quote. And he said, I am the most sought after personality in, 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 in Miami for every politician. If I do that, it, it's going to be no end. I won't be able to say no to anybody. And there were a lot of people that are very powerful that want my quote. I said, I don't need you to speculate or give opinion. I'd like you to give me a factual statement. And I I said, just what you, you quoted. I said, could you say this, coach? He said, I could say that. I said, okay, will you prove it if I put that on my flyer? Yes. He says, that was it. That's how that came down. He said, I can do that because anyone who had asked me, I can say to them, I know this kid. I know this is what he does. He he has high goals. He has ability to compartmentalize, and he gets it done. Right. And and he means the world to me. He's one of my most important people in my life. He was a great man. I saw in my research that you didn't just want to be known as a football player or an all-pro guard and then, oh, hey, Grandpa was a was an all-pro guard for the Dolphins in 1984, and then he played golf for 50 years or something. And you really made it a point to be in, intentional and become successful in another area in, in life out, outside of football. Had you always wanted to, to go to law school and, and pursue that, that avenue? 
or was there maybe another field? When, when did you start thinking about law school? It's an interesting um, um, question. Uh, my father is a manufacturer of car radiators when he was living, okay. and he wanted me to be that that job. When I went into you know, to pro football, and he was ready to retire himself and was waiting for me, I thought I can do a little better. Okay. It became important um, you know, for plan B. Let me give you a little anecdote. Many years later, just not that many years ago, uh, I bumped into Bob Grease about three years ago. And he said, Ed, of all the players, you, you really chose one of the best careers after football. It's something that gives you respect and notoriety mm-hmm. and a good salary and, and, and a lot of very uh, good things that you have that uh, many other ballplayers didn't have. Shula, and he, he's right about that. I, I am, I, I'd still be working as a judge if, if, if it weren't for retirement age, mandatory at 70, I'm 72. So I reinvented myself. Got to keep in mind, I was pretty much going to school through my whole pro career. Right. I was not towards a degree. I just liked learning. I liked reading. Right. It's just different. I was a different kind of person. I did that and then, um, and then you, a, you a lot. Had... I went to a coach in my, my last year. Maybe it was the year of 1984. And I said, I've applied to law school and I've been accepted. School starts on September 6th, something along that line. I didn't want to deceive you, coach. I don't want you to you know, hear about it, that I, I'm in law school. And he was very sagely, without missing a beat, said, you're our all pro. We need you to be a top level. With this information, I'm going to say, yes, you can do it. But if you give a hint of lapse, any, anything's not rested enough, you're not performing as well. I said, I can deal with that. I'll quit football. If I'll quit law school if, if that happens. My first loyalties are, are to the Dolphins. And so we shook hands on that, and that, that wasn't a problem. We went to a Super Bowl, and I had my all-pro year. I had my uh, number one in the right guard uh, in the year. And I was very pleased. I was very excited. Uh, I can say that the, the law school curriculum was great to help me get past football. I was too busy to, to lament about it or to feel sorry for myself. I was working. I joined the Law Review. There's sports in our published an article. I started doing litigation competitions. I was really working hard to become a competent lawyer and, and, and then a judge. I was a lawyer for, for nine years or so. Then I became a judge. And I, I missed that as well. People asked me, which was better? Was it better to be a lawyer judge or was it better to be a football player? And I, the answer is, when you're 25 years old, it's better to be a football player. When you're 45 years old, it's better to be a judge. <laughs> so, Let me ask you this. So what were some things that didn't change you as, as a person, but maybe that you, some principles of Coach Shula that you took with you that you incorporated 
into your own routine. You know, the the other things we talked about, but being on Shula time and, you know, being overprepared and diligent with what you did were, were there a couple of things that, you know, maybe that you didn't, you, you knew them already, but they were emphasized to you that you really made it a point to do in your own life out, outside of the Dolphins? I think that it's not a monopoly, football or sports for that matter. It's not a monopoly on character development, but it is a way to develop character. Right. A lot of good things come from sports. As I say, it's not exclusive, but athletes have goals. Goal formation is an important thing. You don't have to reach to the star. To be an all-pro NFL, that's a high goal. It's a lofty goal, and that's the start. Get into law school. My dad, I was talking earlier, and it comes back to me. He never wanted me to be a lawyer, and uh, he wanted me to go into his business. But I reached, I, I, I was able to overcome. I was able to jump into a new arena, the first lawyer in my family. After you have your goals, you have to have a plan, which involves discipline and, and scheduling and continuing re- refinement. Of, of It's a highly competitive field, football or law. You're cramming a tremendous amount of technical knowledge or physical knowledge Sure. Football and, and, and you have to plan for that. You have to be diligent. You have to prepare practice. You have to put in 10,000 hours to make it to make a good one time. Right. Uh, and um, then there are skills that y- you have to maintain yourself you have to avoid distractions. You have to stay healthy. Um, you have to keep right with people when you live in a society. And you have to be well regarded on charities and those kinds of things in, in the greater community. And those those things are all lessons that that I, I gained while while playing playing football. How to how to deal with people, how to achieve goals, and there's also interpersonal relationships. Like you don't tell an opponent that he's that his mother's a drunk or something like that. You don't do those kinds of things. Right. You know how to keep the game in front of you. Conduct yourself the right way. It, you do the right thing. You, you take care of your assignment. There are leadership things that, that come in. I was mostly leading by example as best as I could. I never was a captain. I was considered, but I was never a captain. Special teams. Oh, I used to love that. And, and the, in my rookie year, Shula, if you had an exceptional play, he would name you captain on special teams. That's so nice. I got about four four captains in my rookie year out of, out of 16 games. That was so nice. Was so wow. nice to get that kind of thing. Wow, that's nice recognition. Yeah. Very nice. Yeah. And it truly did that. I got a couple of game balls. Very rare for an offensive lineman to get a game ball. Let's see. Oh, I can see it back there. Let's see. Oh. Somewhere else. All right. No problem. No problem. Wonderful um, memories. Very few regrets. That's the other thing that, that I've I've noticed when I've spoken to someone from such as yourself from the early teams that, that there's no regrets about playing or, hey, they have this injury or this thing or that thing. There's no regrets or bitterness about having played professional football than having an injury or something of the like to contend with these days. There's no bitterness on anyone's part. I agree. I, I, I would modify it a little bit. 
Nobody wants to be told that they're not good enough. And when they are ultimately said you're not good enough, they can't blame themselves. Sometimes it's a doctor that gets the blame, another right. teammate that gets the blame, or a coach. Okay. Or it could even be a fan. It could it, it, some other a, a wife, some other circumstance. There's bitterness that frequently accompanies the end of a football career. Uh, my in my case, uh, you wouldn't hear it in the papers so much or in the radio so much. But if you love that as much as I, I was so in love with football, I, so consumed by it, I, I was very hurt. I thought I was rejected. In my case, the the, the director of player personnel said to me. And I, I said, you have to give me this contract or I'm going to, I'm not going to work out anymore. Uh, and he said, you'll always be one of the family. That, it, it hit me like wow. he stabbed me in the heart. He stabbed me and I, I'll never forget it. So there is some bitterness, but where was I? I was taking law school exams. Who had time to talk about whether I could play football another year or not? It was on to plan B. That's right. My, my advice to the to the, the general audience is always keep a plan B, a plan B, you know, lurking and as an alternative. Always keep going. your feelers going. Sure. And, and I have to say, I've been very lucky. I had a lot of talent. I was able to work hard and diligent and, and bring it out. And I was able to stay healthy enough, barely, to to show uh, as a as a judge and as a football player. It's, you did that. You were just such a terrific story. You did both of those so well. How do you feel you were able to to most have an impact in the in the courtroom, on the bench, with the people that appeared before you? What type of impact do you feel like you had in those lives and those people? There are key people that should be mentioned. Diana. Um, Falcon is my former secretary, now that I'm retired. She stayed with me for 28 years. She was with me for, for eight years as a lawyer. And um, she's still working for my successor judge, a good friend, and I, I had an impact on her life, her family. Tony Nathan yes. came in as a bailiff, for, former running back. Retires as a player and then as a coach, like 11 years as a coach. Yeah. His contacts were a little bit dried up and he wanted to coach. And I called him and said, I need a bailiff. It's a great job for you. And you, I think you're going to love it. Do me a favor and try it. And I'll understand if you don't love it, will you walk? And he stayed with me for 12 years, 13 years. It was That was pretty wonderful. Sure. Other people that uh, have been affected, the lawyers came in, and the attitudes that, that they had is, it was like the, you know, the animals were running the zoo. Uh, I brought Shula's control, uh, leadership, organization, I should say. Sure. I, I instituted a lot of things to, 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 I am not interested in beating up on anybody, but I am interested in closing the files that are, that are assigned to me. The nature of the game is if you don't if you don't clear out the the docket, right, you're going to be unhappy and you're going to be working, and all your staff is going to be working until seven eight o'clock every day, and a lot of judges do that. But when you're strong and you don't suffer nonsense, you don't suffer fools. That's right. Things happen 
you gain their respect. I knew the stuff. I knew what was going on. And there's a tremendous game. Most of my career was in the criminal division, misdemeanor court for the audience. Okay. Uh, and uh, there's a lot of delay tactics dragging your feet. But no defendant wants to go to trial and the prosecutor's ready. And frequently, the prosecutors are not ready. So cases go away because of plea bargaining or uh, requests for continuances. If I brought my football as this is the task, to close out the, the cases fairly. And that may require a trial. If you want to avoid a trial, then it's either avoid a trial because that's your best choice. You shouldn't use the process. What did I bring there? I was no nonsense. Right. Tony, go get the panel. Go get the jury panel. We're ready to go. And then in the hallway, they would um, they would settle if they wanted to. If they had a case, then they would go. To, they would do their case. And what happens is a very high percentage of cases that I brought to trial were found not guilty because they were right to make the decision. A lot of the people that, that at that stage, defend, defense attorneys, they want to win without the right decision. If you understand what I'm saying, yep. you have a guilty person. They win if, if the state's not ready for some reason. If the state makes the prosecutor makes some mistake, so what my impact was: be on time, be prepared. I have my goals. I want to um, clear out the docket as much as I can. Uh, and get the results correctly, right? not get appealed. I, I work to do those things. And a lot of that, I tell the, the, the lawyers, don't lead me into error. Be straight with me. So I, I got the respect. I had a very good run, 28 years with the, most of that at the Richard Gersten is a criminal justice building where our main juries sure. are. And uh, amazing cases. There was really uh, a mind expanding uh, experience for me. So I love the opportunity to branch out into a, a mechanism of, a, of the world. Part of the clockwork is the court. And to have a, the privilege of being involved in that. I also got along as a, I was like a people's champion, big on charities. And with the NFL experience, I could talk to jurors very easily. And I could talk to lawyers very easily. I was never tempted into corruption, never. Not even, I think that there are temptations out there, and I, I didn't have to worry about that. Sure. I didn't entertain favorites. I recused myself if there was a favorite on it. I, I, stayed, out of, I stayed out of trouble. I kept clean. And, uh, and that's another thing. Sometimes the profession, it, it, you have to, you take a shower before you get into those robes. You right. got to be clean. Yep. And uh, that was also an important thing for Ed Newman's life. There I am, a ball player, got out of that clean, relative. I got some injuries that uh, scarred me up a little bit, but a lot of great lessons goal formation, planning, preparations, diligence, Integrity. determination. And all the other good things that come from sports, a lot of that translates into many other careers, including judging and, and uh, lawyering. I am planning on, they have a status called senior judge. Okay. All judges in Dade County are elected unless point, appointed as a senior judge. You get a one-year possible window of appointment without an election. 
you have to sit out one year, and I'm one year out as of January 1st. I have an application right on the desk. I'm going to try to do some more judging. It's a substitute teacher type of the profile. Nice. When you have the, the regular judges, it does a, a, a number of things. It lets me call myself judge, maintains some respect, gives me some valuable things to do with my time. Sure. It's not only golf, although I do enjoy my golf. I wish I were a better player, frankly. Maybe that's why I want to go back to judging. I can do something good <laughs> there. You know, I can get a I can get a good shot over there, but uh, not so much up the third hole. Sure. Were there any, what's the best way for me to ask this without naming names to protect the innocent and all those good things? Was there a case or two that where someone had, there were reasons that someone had appeared before you and then you gave them their instructions from the court when Tony would tell them, hey, let this be the last time that we see you in here. Did, did you have a lot of success stories like that? Or yeah, I, I, I did. I, I work with people. Sure. Um, a big part of the my docket was driving-related uh, incidents that are criminal. Driving with no license or reckless or uh, um, DUI um, um, type of cases. Driving license suspended cases and no valid driver's license cases. I, I had a, a program that was innovative. I don't think anybody else did it. All the other judges did this. They said, we'll give you a dismissal if you get your license by the next hearing. Right now, a lot of these people have $1,000 of tickets, and, and it's, it's backbreaking for them. Uh, my innovation was, I could do that, but, but I'm going to give you a half a year now. I'll, I'll let you have six months to get your license, but you have to say no contest. I don't know if you want to do that. If you want to have a trial, you can have a trial. If you say no contest, in six months, I'll dismiss the case if you have a license. If you don't have a license, I'll sentence you. I'll give you a minimum sentence withhold and, and the minimum costs. But we won't have to try the case, that, and you won't have to come back here if you have your license. And I can look it up. You didn't even have to come back. Sure. About 60% of them, 70% of them, got licenses where they wouldn't have. That made a big difference. Good. I had a situation with a professional disruptor, and he would feign, pretend that he was mentally ill. Okay. Are you here today for a DWLS, driving license suspended? What is here? And he would say, <laughs> how did I get here? Those kinds of things. Come to find that he's running on the internet, how to beat the courts for DWLS cases. Right. Act crazy. He's, he's talking rationally. He's making money on this YouTube video. But I had seen it. He had four or five different postings. And he's recording judges and all that stuff. He ended up in a contempt situation. The only person I ever held in contempt. He had exhausted every excuse he, he could have to avoid the trial. And I said, see that you take a sentence or you, you go to trial. Now, there's nothing else. And he, he left the courtroom. So I had Tony get him and pull him back. And I started a contempt proceeding. And I, I sentenced him to 30 days of jail. And I told him, 
call your lawyer if you ever want to come back and go to trial, and we'll bring you back. He refused. He was stubborn. He kept on going. At the 30th day, they were set to release him. They do a standard protocol. They did a, a warrant search. There's a fancy name for it. They searched all through the states, all 50 states, and they found that he had a warrant in Texas for driving license suspended. And he had about 19 tickets there. Hmm. So they kept him in there. They kept him in prison until the, there was a formalism. The expense for traveling to, to transport this guy to Texas mm-hmm. would be borne by Texas. Okay. They said, no, we don't want him. You know, you can let him go. They let him go, and he's coming back to my court. I, I'm hearing all of this stuff and all that stuff. And he says to me, help me to get my license in order. And I did. And he's driving on a license with a license now. Got him on a payment plan. And I was always fair like that. I said, these fines for, it's a tax on poor people, for lack of a better description. Sure. It, the deterrent theory doesn't really work on, on, on folks. If you're late for work and, you're, and, you, and you run through a, a speed zone, it's unfortunate. But a person making 100000 or, or way more than that isn't as bothered by a $200 ticket as a, as a person that's making 200 a week. Right. They, they just throw that ticket away. They, they, the poor people. So I would find ways to um, help them out. And I, I made an impact. I said, okay, you have a thousand dollars of traffic infraction that you have to pay for. I understand that you're working and you need your money. So I'll give you some community service hours. What's your wage? The state pays them $10 an hour, which is ridiculous. For, for community service. Right. I Sometimes I go with $50 an hour. Yeah. That kind of thing. I think your labor is valuable. I'll give it to you. If I can hear it's good, if it's good labor, I'll give you 50 an hour. How does that sound? So they can pay down their bill in, 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 uh, in 10 or 15 days. And I send orders to the, you know what I'm saying, to 20 days. And that worked pretty well. Lawyers, I had a, a good opportunity to Work with a few of them. There were some that had substance problems. I talked with them, and that straightened out. Others that were chronically late. Shula's example was, I used to say things, you can tell your client you would have won if you'd been here. I continued the case. I was poking the eye. You know, don't do that. You didn't have an excuse. I had to be in other courts. I love you too much. I need you here. They tell everybody that, but this is, that judge doesn't love you. I love you. You have to be here. I need you here. So you, you give them that kind of line. They, they know who you are. And innovations, things like this. You get a pad of paper. Okay. I'm limited by one person at a time at the podium. There are 19 people, and they all have to get to other courtrooms, lawyers. I said, write your name. Say whether you're ready or not. You can't leave if you're if under certain circumstances we need to close the case. So I pressured them to get it closed. But if they had, if you had to get to while I'm downtime, I don't want you stuck here, trapped here. Go to your other court. You have to promise if I call you, you'll come back. 
They they love that. They loved me for that. That's pretty fair. So you, don't, you don't have to sit here. Just tell me you're here. You're ready for trial. And you'll come back when I'm ready for you. Sure. That's all I need. Yeah. He, he said, one thing, if the other judge says I have to go to trial, then I have to go to the other judge's trial. So that's fine. I'm fast. I'll be letting you know by 11 o'clock. We'll, we'll start our voir dire at 11. You call them back. They come in. Almost always they settle. There you go. Can't be any more you fair know, than that. The public may not be, at least in my court, we would have maybe two trials a month. That would be it. We had about three or 4,000 cases to go through, varying degrees of complexity or seriousness. Sure. So you get things done. That's, I think, a legacy is Ed Newman, yeah, he was able to get things done. He used his energy correctly. He used his, his process correctly. Sure. I think that it's, oh, everybody thinks they're great. I like me. Do you like you? <laughs> yes, absolutely. Uh, I like you too. That's that's how you do it. That's how you do it. So let me jump back. I keep jumping back to 1973 here. So the team has lost, I believe, around now a, a third of its members and all of the coaching staff. Yeah, the 72 team. Yeah, yeah, 72 as well. I, I know there's a, those reunions are a lot of fun for you guys to still get together and reminisce and everything. How much You're saying team, my team has, has lost a third of its rank and file? I, I yeah. believe so, because there was very little turnover in personnel from 72. There were, I think, five or six new players on. Six on the players. Team. I was one of six. So, yeah. Uh, there was, there's, a, there's been a, a rather recent spate of um, early death for teammates. It's yeah. heartbreaking. Astounding to me that some of my teammates just take it as a matter of fact uh, for me it's devastating yeah uh, my best friend eric laxell passed away many years ago gary apremian mm-hmm. jake scott yeah jim manish you just keep go down the list these people are larger than life it's very sad that they're gone don shula all the co- there's no surviving coach right it's the mortality there's a concern I just lost over 60 pounds because I wanted to live. Yeah. Um, There's a concern that football players, generally they're, they're gone in their 70s because of the stressors that they put on their body. A lot of it's being overweight. Mm-hmm. It's a sad thing. We're also concerned about the, con- the concussion protocols and uh, some of my teammates. There's, there's some the game takes something from you. You take something from the game and the game takes something back. And that's a a, a tough thing. I, I, I know. How much do you still enjoy being able to see your teammates who can still travel at the various functions and the celebrations? And how important are the relationships and the brotherhood that's formed over the years? I have to digress to Mr. Ross, the, the team owner. Robbie and Heisinger are also in the category. They were very generous to the alumni. and They yeah. donate a uh, skybox. We have about 30 seats. We have about 50 seats, I think. And uh, it's limited, so I can't get to every game, but um, it's one player and one guest. So 50% of the people in the suite are my teammates. They get to three games, sometimes four games a season. It's always a hug. It's always tell stories, and there's nobody that relates as well as another teammate. Right. 
some of those guys are heartbreaking. I, I hurt when Wayne Moore died. I hurt when Eric Laxto died. My mm. was my best friend. There have been a number of other people that I uh, was very close to. I look at my teammates, and I seem to. I mentioned it already. I, I feel like I, I feel it more than they do when other teammates. Sure. Mortality is, is tough. Mortality in your seventies is tough. We all should be living into our eighties. I don't know. It's a circumstance. Large people generally die earlier. Heavy people. But that's unfortunate that so many have uh, have passed for a, a variety of reasons with with the concussions and the CTE, like you mentioned. All right. You're on the Miami Dolphins board of alumni board of directors and a couple of other boards in the Miami community. And I know how much your service is appreciated. Can you talk about the Dolphins alumni board and what and what you guys do for former teammates, maybe who have fallen on some hard times and yes, in other circumstances? The, the Dolphins Alumni Association um, has rejuvenated a little bit. And, uh, and uh, there was an election and I lost an election. Uh, that was maybe six years ago. But I was a director with the Dolphin organization. It's a foundation. The team itself puts on an annual golf tournament and many other speaking engagement type of things. And funds are collected for a dire need fund. The board of directors votes. We we get a candidate says this person is going to lose a house unless we, we step in. There are examples that protect their privacy. I won't mention names, but we have saved people from losing their house. Sometimes it's a medical thing. The league itself also has facilities for the concussion protocols or serious spine injuries or or orthopedic stuff. If you're too poor, they'll take care of it. And part of our function was to get them connected to doctors. We're also an outreach. There's depression and mental illness that, that sometimes happens. It happens to everybody, but particularly in the NFL, our players, we have reach out, we make sure that they come to our events and we that, that, that they're welcome and, and, and made part of the organization, um, which is very good. We now recently have this Dolphin Cancer Challenge and maybe 30 or 40 of the alumni come out and uh, they, they help the fans to raise millions, tens of millions of dollars. It's, it's one of the most successful. The Dolphin organization itself by far is the number one alumni as far as reach back and, and, and be friends with um, uh, the, the old timers. Sure. Sure. Uh, and there's a lot of good things that come from it. It's a very embracing atmosphere. There's nothing like playing ball, but it's good to, to chat with your teammates about the good days. Do you remember when that happened? The lies get bigger and bigger every year. <laughs> I've been on a few other boards, but I'm not presently on a board. It was a board of transition. We did a tremendous amount of work. Transition is a, a workforce organization that helps men and women. Generally, they have a little bit of a criminal record. Okay. I really liked having that uh, assignment because I'm putting those people in jail. Uh, rehab is the ideal thing. You don't want to warehouse people. You want them to be productive and part right. of the system, part of the program. I used to go there and give speeches to their their staff, just pep talks, try to get them funded. I did some good things for them. And that was fine. 
And you made a big difference there as well. I think I did. Yeah. Sure. Sure. I think I did. It's hard to tell. Sure. I think I helped some lawyers mature and, and develop. I, I helped some d- defendants. Certainly, I'm helping my family and friends. Yeah. Been yeah. a good run. It it has. And in, in 2014, along with Tony Nathan, I might add, you were inducted into the Miami Dolphins Walk of Fame. Was that a lifetime achievement for you? In which of your Hall of Fame inductions have meant the most to you? I was growing up in high school. My father, my grandparents, my mother, they all said, get out of football. It's, it's too dangerous. My father and I had a, had a talk, and we reached a pact. And um, it, was, it was very formative. He said, I'd like you to have a nice, long, and healthy, and prosperous life, and I don't think football will do it for you. He says, I'll, I'll, I'll change my mind if you're the best in your team. He says, if you're excellent, I'll change my mind. And I said, okay, that, that sounds good. I'll be the best on the team. And I made myself. I just worked harder at it. Sure. A reputation can be gained through sports. You can get farther and you know, further ahead just by that reputation. So that's why you have to be the best. You can't be an also-ran. You have to be the best. That was a vindication, that Walk of Fame honor. Right. That was, wow. And the other one was, there's an award here, the top 50. That really meant that's the, the top 50 in the first 50 years of the franchise. And I had the Kuchenberg and Little that were so superb. That, but, they, but that was a big, that was a big lifetime achievement for you with the Walk of Fame and with the top 50. They were actualization events, self-realization events. They were final recognition you have achieved as one of the elites. It was a validation. It was a right. validation of my life choices is what it meant to me. And interestingly, Tony Nathan was inducted in the same yes. year. And that was also pretty nice. I, it was, I love the Dolphins. I'm really happy for them. I'm really happy to be part of them. Northwest 17th Street in Miami was renamed to Ed Newman Street. You see the sign behind you there in your honor. That acknowledged the oh, civic uh, contributions that you made to the Miami area with the blood drives that you coordinated uh, on behalf of South Florida Blood Service. And that also earned you the Dolphins team nomination for NFL Man of the Year Award in 1983. How special was it to you to be recognized by the Miami community for your charitable efforts? How special was that? That's the meaning of being a valuable person. The person, the people who coexist in their community and make the world a better place for having been in it. That, that's a, that's one definition of success. I can give you a little background. There was a guy named Bob Carney from the Dolphins. Mm-hmm. He was the director of publicity, and I said, "I'm feeling unsatisfied with the charities that I'm doing. They're like men's association or touchdown clubs, and they're all over the place." Can we focus my fire a little bit? And they set up the South Florida Blood Service meeting, and they developed a, a campaign called the Ed Newman Challenge. The Northwest 17th Street office 
is at Newman Street now. Right. Nobody in the NFL had done it before, or in the in sports for that matter. Yeah. Right. Yeah. The uh, the local community was demographically Cuban, and Cubans have I'm speaking the voice of the South Water Blood Service resistance to donating blood more than other cultures. Okay. But it's not an irresistible block. All they needed was some spokesman to say, I'll sign autographs. I'll talk to you. I'll pat your back. I'll, I'll give you trophies. So we made that kind of plan. And, and um, we did that for four years. We had four campaigns my last four years. And uh, they, they quadrupled our, 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 our uh, donation rate. And it's a sticky prospect. Once people, the Cubans, for instance, mm-hmm. learn that it's not such a big deal, you can do that and feel good about it. And I'm not asking for money. Right. It's, uh, right. I'm asking for your giving a, a gift of life. It was a very easy uh, um, thing for me to help people do that. And I, I felt wonderful about it. The, the, the people over at the South Florida Blood Service knew uh, commissioners, and that's how the street naming uh, occurred. It was a, a very special thing. And interestingly, it's it's um, five blocks from from the courthouse um, <laughs> sure. that I that I worked in. Uh, that's seventeenth, and the courthouse is on twelfth. Okay, and it's it's literally around the corner. Uh, uh, it's just a nice the way things worked out. Very, sure, very, very, uh, recognition very is is nice. I didn't really live for it. I was ha- much happier that. I don't know of any particular person that I, I helped to survive, but I think I did. I think I helped people overcome very serious illnesses because of the blood drives that occurred. I gave good recognition for the dolphins. I went to corporations. I went to high schools every week. I went on the WIOD radio, and their deal was talk for a minute and a half football and a minute and a half who are the winners for the Ed Newman Challenge. <laughs> and we're giving an award to Rider System because 30% of their workforce donated, that kind of thing. There you go. Uh, and it was a good experience. And then transition. Um, in those days, it was so easy to just give. It was a nice thing. I'm happy that I did that. It was, I was totally selfless. I had only one interest is to help people. And you've done that. You've done that very well. You're most welcome. And you've you've been very generous with with your time. Let me just ask you a couple more things, and we'll move on to other commitments today. Did you think you would have the distinguished career in life that you've had? My attitude in high school was: I think I can play play for pro football. Then the goal was to make the team. But as I got into it, and I said, now I want to be the best at that as well, if I can. I think, to be honest about it, every player in the NFL wants to be a Hall of Famer, and I'm no exception. I give a lot of credit, and I can see the differences. I see that they are truly worthy people. Nonetheless, I I had a wonderful career and a wonderful um, association with teammates, we talked about the bookends with Marino and and Greasy. Mm-hmm. It's so interesting when I, when I came in under Greasy, I was a, a dopey rookie, and when I came out with Marino, I was the the, 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 the lauded 
veteran, a great stature. I don't think I ever changed at all, but I guess I did. Yep. Life, life has a way of changing you. It it does, and you've had a, it. It's one thing to have a Hall of Fame career, but it's another to be a Hall of Fame person. And you've yeah, thank you. You've certainly achieved that. It's, it, I, I'm, I apologize if I'm being redundant here. Is there any one accomplishment that you're most proud of? Yes, I think making a transition during the Super Bowl as a freshman, 1L law student, by going to school at night. I mean, much of this is touched on in the book that you referenced at the top of it. This is really the, the, the crisis that occurs. I'm involved in the Super Bowl. I'm involved in law school at night. I wake up in the morning. I rush out of the house at seven in the morning. I'm out of the house, and I'm, uh, there's a nine thirty practice at, at, at the Dolphin facility. It gave me about an hour in the library. I, I would open the library every day before practice. I'd go through my practices and that would include lunch and afternoon practice and film watching and all the coaching. Damn, I got to get to class. First class was at six thirty. I'm married with two kids. Kathy, I don't have time to come home. Let me, let's meet at this restaurant over by the university, the University of Miami. She'd start out, I'm angry at you because you didn't do that job or these clothes are off or something. Kathy, we don't have time for arguments. This is time for love and encouragement. So 20 minutes, I'd eat off to class. The professors would, would be there. They'd be doing their, their test. Let's see if you're just a, a joke or if you're real. They would pick on me a little bit. I, I stood up for myself. Classes ended at 10.15, uh, 6.30 to 10.15. Library closed at, at midnight. I closed the library every night. And this was okay for about a month and into September, but the really heroic part of it was happening in October, November, and December. Well, I was, and to practice the next day, I would drive home, fall asleep. The librarian would say, "We're closed." It shocked me. Would 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 come home. I'm reading on the flight to to the Super Bowl. I'm reading my case book, my case authorities. I'm writing appellate briefs as, as law students would do. And, you know, on the plane. And didn't you have coaches telling you? that you needed to be more worried about your playbook than your law book? Am I saying they that They right? said it precisely was if you are, if we see that you're letting down, if you're letting yourself and the team down, we're going to ask you to leave football, leave the law school, mm. or take a leave of absence, take some time off. And I said, I would do that. He says, I have to, I have to be playing at a lesser level of, of play. And I was the number one right guard in the league for that year. It was my fourth of all pro year. Oh, my fourth Pro Bowl or something. Yeah. I kept my word. The premise is, could I have done better without law school? That's conflicts with what was the most, my, my most, my, my best accomplishment, I think, was getting into law school. And getting through that first year, that was really something. My next, I guess my first 
my greatest accomplishment of all, though, would be making that rookie team, the Dolphins. Making that team was really an incredible event. That eight weeks or so before, as I think it's been so long, it really was the most important day of my life, days of my life. It was so hot. They were so demanding. And they were hazing me. Manny Fernandez was hazing the crap out of me. We became very good friends after that. Uh, (laughs) We have some good adventures, Manny and I, every day. He'd be spitting on my hands. But I did the right things, and I had a good coach, Shula and Monty Clark. And I had a right, the right attitude, and I, and I corrected my mistakes. I, I figured it out. That's how, how it happened. Fellas, listen now. The greatest day of your life, fellas, listen to me. Say it was you met your wife. That was the greatest day of my life. Right. Okay. <laughs> Second was making the Dolphins. The third was getting through, getting into low school. Uh, Succeeding there. Fourth was being elected as a judge. Right. Fifth, I think the South Water Blood Service would have been a a great achievement. They they really did a good job there. Yep. There was a Dr. Tomasello and Pam Gadinsky's shout out now. She was the publicity person. Yeah. And they did a good program. They did film and there were a few other groups that came along. Job well done. Final question here. Is there anything about playing football that you still miss to this day? The huddle, your teammates or game day, any, anything like that? There's a collection of things. Mm-hmm. Just as a background thing, it's wonderful being a physical specimen. I like that feeling where you just glow all the time. It's strong. <laughs> you can sprint. You can hit that. I miss a lot. There is... A locker room environment, a, a community, nothing like that. You've got very pure athletes. They're all about competition. They're all about achievement and, and, and results. They're all about all these things we talked about, the goal setting and the preparation and the determination. I had some relationships with teammates that you can never duplicate. In any other field, it's when blood and guts are involved, and it's like you went to war. You use the word uh, band of brothers. It's so true. Yep. It's war. It is war out there. And to have reliable people, to be competent, the glory of it, the fans, the television, the commercials, the people that are throwing money at you, the fame, the popularity, the relevance. So happy about all that, too. Yeah. Here we are, 50 years later, still talking about the The, Dolphins. The the judge thing, I figured out a way for people to get off their seats again. Yeah. All rise. And that, you know, the Dolphins are coming in. No, it's Judge Newman. (laughs) It was a nice thing as well. Every day, uh, I used to stand outside the door, all rise. I had that feeling, that flutter, that pair on the back of your neck uh, goes up and you know, this is great. This is really nice. This is really, let's do my best. Do your best, Ed. And and that was the same feeling that you had when you were running onto the field between the cheerleaders out to the sidelines. That's yep. so right. There's nothing better. Nothing better. When you have a chance, it's the great contest. You're prepared as you can possibly be. Go. And then if you can get through without regrets, that's a bit of a problem. Nobody's perfect except our 17-0 guys. 
little story. I asked Dick Anderson, do you think that 17 and 0 guys would do well today? In, uh, 2023. Do you think they would be perfect with the, they, would they would be undefeated? He said, they would be perfect is what he said. <laughs> they would be for, they'd find a way. Yeah. I guess no one can argue with them. The average weight of a player is about 70 pounds less now. It was oh, in the sixties and seventies, 73, 72. What a terrific story. Once more, in the early part of 2024, Ed's new book, Warrior Judge, One Man's Journey from Gridiron to Gavel, will be available for purchase on warriorjudge.com. So again, please buy yourself and buy your friend a copy of this gentleman's terrific story. I personally can't wait to get my own copy. Oh, thank you. And read this and see how you bring some of your teammates and these stories to life. Can I espouse on it? i got to give credit to my Holly. Yes, Holly, Holly refined the writing. And she works so hard at it, and, and, and I give her a lot of credit. I also like to tell prospective readers to keep a lookout for Warrior Judge. Yeah. It is a book that that gives lessons to to young people. Many of the things we've talked about, you know, development of um, these skills and uh, getting over adversity and um, dedicating yourself, comp- compartmentalizing what's happening. Much of your concentration is right here and now. You can't be thinking about what's happening this afternoon or next week. That's how the lessons I learned. And it's transmitted. And you can have it on the book, Warrior Judge. The book, actually, is The Path of Samson. Yeah. You see that? Yeah. Um, part of the book, uh, we changed the, the title because we felt that was a little bit too isolated. Samson from Biblical Times. Sure. Was a uh, warrior who happened to, he was one of the, the Hebrew judges. So the concept, which relates to your earlier question, is, is oil and water, academics and athletics. It's difficult to blend those successfully, to have a, a, a person that can be at the pinnacle for both of those fields, academics and athletics. Right. The solution is to stir. Oil and water can blend. But you have to keep on stirring. You sure do. Thank you, Ed, so much for speaking with me today. And I appreciate you very much. And this has just been a great conversation and a real treat for me. So thank you so much for being so generous with your time. i got to call my wife now, my number one fan, and then I'm going to call Holly. Yes, please. (laughs) And I want to thank you for all you've done. And good luck with you. And Happy New Year. Merry Christmas or whatever your holiday. That's it. uh, Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you again for everyone listening for the Heroes and Icons podcast with your host, Greg Randolph. Once more, a huge thank you to our guest, Ed Newman, and a very special thank you to his daughter and co-author, Holly Greenberg, for her assistance in helping coordinate our meeting today. Again, you can find the link to the book's website in the show notes for this podcast. Please order an extra copy for a friend while you're at it. I, I know it's going to be great, and I can't wait to see it. Thank you very much. Thank you again, everyone, for listening. Have a great night. God bless. We'll see you next time.